Supreme Court Update Churchill Falls Labrador Corp. and Hydro-Quebec 2018 SCC 46 The English version of the judgment of Justices Abella, Maldaver, Karakatsanis, Wagner, Gascon, Cote, and Brown was delivered by Justice Gascon. Part 1 Overview Paragraph 1 The Churchill River Basin in Labrador is one of the areas with the greatest hydroelectric potential in the world. In 1969, following several years of negotiations, two sophisticated entities, the Hydro-Quebec Electric Commission, Hydro-Quebec, and the Churchill Falls Labrador Corporation Limited, CFL Co., signed a contract, the power contract, or contract, that set out a legal and financial framework for harnessing that potential by building a hydroelectric plant, plant, on the river. It was a huge project involving a substantial amount of money. The parties chose to allocate the risks and benefits of the contract over a 65-year period. 2. The contract signed by the parties made the project viable and attractive for each of them. On the one hand, Hydro-Quebec undertook to purchase most of the power produced by the plant, whether it needed it or not, and to protect CFL Co. from any cost overruns incurred in the construction of the plant. This assured CFL Co. of a stable return on its investment and allowed it to use debt financing for the construction of the plant, which is now estimated to be worth $20 billion. On the other hand, Hydro-Quebec sought and obtained the right to purchase electricity at fixed prices for the entire term of the contract. This protected it from inflation and assured it that it would benefit from low prices in the event of an increase in the market prices for electricity. 3. Nearly 50 years after the contract was signed, there have been changes in the electricity market, whose effect is that the purchase price for electricity set in the contract is well below market prices. As a result, Hydro-Quebec sells electricity to third parties at current prices while continuing to pay CFL Co. the price agreed to in the contract in 1969. This generates substantial profits for Hydro-Quebec. 4. CFL Co. argues that given this reality, which in its view was unforeseen, Hydro-Quebec can no longer avail itself of the benefits conferred on it by the words of the contract. In CFL Co.'s opinion, these circumstances, which it characterizes as new and unforeseeable, mean that for Hydro-Quebec to do so is contrary to the equilibrium established by the initial agreement and to the principle of good faith in contracting. CFL Co. argues that, because the possibility that Hydro-Quebec would, within the space of a few years, find itself in so advantageous a position for the sale of electricity at very high prices was unthinkable in the late 1960s, the contract as initially contemplated cannot be found to apply in such circumstances. CFL Co. submits that because the party's agreement dealt first and foremost with the creation of a cooperative, sharing relationship, the words of the contract do not reflect that primary intention of the parties, and the application of the contract now creates a situation that bears no resemblance to the contractual relationship contemplated in 1969. 5. In the circumstances, 
CFL Co. is asking the courts to order that the contract be renegotiated and that its benefits be reallocated. Specifically, CFL Co. seeks to have the fixed rate per kilowatt hour paid to it by Hydro-Quebec replaced with a new and more advantageous rate. It submits that this change is necessary for two reasons. First, to ensure that the contract reflects the initial equilibrium it is relying on, and second, to enforce Hydro-Quebec's alleged duty to cooperate with its longtime partner on the basis of its general duty of good faith. 6. The Quebec Superior Court and Court of Appeal both ruled against CFL Co. I agree with their conclusion. In Quebec civil law, there is no legal basis for CFL Co.'s claim. This court cannot change the content of the contract, nor can it require the parties to renegotiate certain terms of the contract or to share the benefits otherwise than as provided for in the contract. All of CFL Co.'s arguments, which are based on the nature of the contract and its implied duties, the general duty of good faith, or a variation on the doctrine of unforeseeability, imprévision, must fail. Moreover, all of them require questioning the trial judge's determinative findings of fact, which are tainted by no palpable and overriding error. I would therefore dismiss the appeal. Part 2. Background. Paragraph 7. To clarify what is an issue, it is important to clearly determine what the parties intended and expected at the time they entered into the contract, and how their relationship has evolved since then. This review of the factual background is based essentially on the trial judge's reasons. Since the courts below have already reviewed the relevant evidence thoroughly and in detail, I will limit myself to the salient aspects of the evidence that are determinative of this appeal. Subpart A. Origin of the Development Project. Paragraph 8. In 1961, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador signed a lease with the Hamilton Falls Power Corporation Limited, which later changed its name to CFL Co., a subsidiary of the British Newfoundland Corporation Limited, Brinco. Brinco was a consortium of industrial, banking, and mining companies whose directors were, according to the trial judge, elite titans of industry at the time. The lease conferred on CFL Co. was the right to make use of the watershed of the Churchill Falls site to produce hydroelectric power. The lease, which was for a fixed rent, had a term of 99 years, renewable for a further 99 years. It provided that royalties were to be paid to the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, but prohibited the province from raising taxes or increasing the amount of the royalties. 9. At the time, Brinco wanted to exploit the watershed and build a hydroelectric plant there, but it was apparently unwilling either to finance the plant by issuing shares in CLF Co. or to commit its own funds. Instead, it tried to secure debt financing for the construction of the plant. For that purpose, CFL Co., its subsidiary that was to develop the project, sought customers that could guarantee they would purchase large quantities of electricity on a long-term basis, in part to assure its future creditors that the project was financially viable. The customers it sought would need to have the technology required to transmit electricity produced by the plant to customers. In the trial judge's opinion, there was nothing to suggest that, at the time, CFL Co. was in any way dealing with an urgent situation 
that forced it to undertake the project in such circumstances. 10. Hydro-Quebec, a state-owned enterprise created in 1944 that has a monopoly on electricity in Quebec since 1963, met these criteria. Furthermore, it was at that time facing an increase in demand for electricity in Quebec. This did not make it the perfect partner, however, as it was capable of developing its own hydroelectric projects. Hydro-Quebec, therefore, had to be convinced that it would be worth its while to participate in the construction of plants owned by third parties and to purchase their electricity rather than producing its own. Subpart B. Negotiations, Letter of Intent, and Power Contract. Paragraph 11. CFL Co. approached Hydro-Quebec immediately after the 1961 lease was signed, but Hydro-Quebec rejected its initial offers. It was not until 1966 that the parties agreed on a development project. At that time, they signed a letter of intent setting out the terms of the project, although those terms required the approval of the governments of Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador. Article 2 of the letter of intent stipulated that a final contract remained to be signed. The letter of intent stated that CFLO Co. would be responsible for building the plant and Hydro-Quebec for building the transmission lines to Quebec. The parties expected Hydro-Quebec to purchase a fixed quantity of electricity from the plant for 40 years at fixed prices that would decrease every 5 or 10 years and would be based on the cost of building the plant. The purchase guarantee took the form of a take-or-pay undertaking that would require Hydro-Quebec to buy and pay for a fixed quantity of electricity whether they needed it or not. The letter of intent also provided that CFL Co., would have the right to receive 300 megawatts of electricity on request. This was the right of recapture. The parties also agreed that Hydro-Quebec would guarantee up to 100 or $109 million in construction cost overruns. 12. Construction of the plant began immediately, but both CFLO Co. and Hydro-Quebec quickly realized that the work was proving to be more costly than it had been anticipated. In addition, Potential creditors were hesitant and were asking for additional security. This required the parties to make changes to their respective prestations, with the result that a new contract, Chual Equilibrium, was established following further negotiations. The 1969 power contract, which superseded and replaced the letter of intent, therefore differed fundamentally from the latter on certain key points. For example, Hydro-Quebec now guaranteed any cost overruns for the plant. As well, the parties retained the initial 40-year term, but agreed to add a clause providing for automatic renewal of the contract for an additional 25 years. 13. In his rigorous analysis of the evidence, the trial judge reviewed the negotiations on this last point in detail. He noted that, because the electricity prices were based directly on the plant's construction costs, cost overruns, had increased those prices and made the project less attractive for Hydro-Quebec. He observed that, at the time, Hydro-Quebec had therefore requested, in what the executive committees of the boards of directors of Brinco and CFLCO perceived as a very firm position, an option to renew the contract for 25 years at a single fixed price, slightly lower than the rate it was to pay at the end of the initial term of the contract. It was clear, however, that Hydro-Quebec would still be required to buy and pay for a fixed quantity of electricity. 14. 
The minutes of the joint meeting of those two committees indicate that they were of the view that such a commitment would produce significant annual revenue, that there would be no debt outstanding for CFL Co. at the time of the renewal, and that, although hydroelectricity was an attractive source of power at the time of negotiations, it was conceivable that it would be less economical than nuclear power 40 years later. Ultimately, CFLO Co. acceded to Hydro-Quebec's request, although it thought that it would be better off with an automatic renewal clause, a point which Hydro-Quebec conceded in the end. The government of Newfoundland and Labrador was consulted before the final agreement was signed. See Newfoundland, Attorney General, and Churchill Falls, Labrador Corp., 1985 decision of the Newfoundland Court of Appeal. 15. When the power contract was signed, it reflected the party's legitimate expectations and seemed to them to be mutually beneficial. The paradigm of the contract, its organizing principle, can be easily summarized. On the one hand, Hydro-Quebec assumed the risks associated both with the Churchill River Development Project and with the uncertainty of market prices for electricity. On the other, because CFLO Co. was receiving a plant that it would not be paying for itself and was acquiring the certainty and stability that resulted from having a long-term customer, it agreed in exchange to sell the electricity produced by the plant to Hydro-Quebec at low prices and over a very long period. 16. In these proceedings, CFL Co. is challenging that paradigm. Subpart C. Situation of the parties after they entered into the contract. Paragraph 17. CFL Co. argues that this challenge is justified because of some fundamental and unforeseen changes that have occurred in the electricity market. After the contract was signed, the price of electricity in fact rose significantly, in part because of the oil price shocks of the 1970s, and the decline in public confidence in nuclear power due to an accident in a plant that happened in 1979. The relative market positions of CFL Co. and Hydro-Quebec are alleged to have changed as well. Technologies for transporting and distributing electricity are more efficient. Furthermore, since 1996, the United States Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has required any company that sells electricity in that country, including Hydro-Quebec, to give any interested third party access to its transmission systems. 18. In CFL Co.'s view, these changes have essentially disrupted the equilibrium of the contract. The prestations owed to Hydro-Quebec now have a much greater value than the parties could have foreseen when they entered into the contract. CFL Co. argues that this disproportion between the parties' prestations cannot be tolerated. Hydro-Quebec should be required to renegotiate the contract and, more specifically, the sale price for electricity, so that the substantial profits generated by the resale of electricity produced by the plant are shared more equitably. 19. That being said, there were other changes in the circumstances of the parties subsequent to the conclusion of the contract that must also be considered here. First, in 1974 and 1975, Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro, a crown corporation, acquired Brinko's shares, and the shares of another minority shareholder of CFL Co., but not those of Hydro-Quebec. What the government of Newfoundland and Labrador hoped to gain with respect to the Churchill Falls project then quickly became apparent. In 1976, it tried to force CFL Co. to recapture more electricity than CFL Co. was entitled to under the contract. CFL Co. responded 
that the inevitable result of doing so would be a failure to perform the prestations it owed to Hydro-Quebec, and it declined to comply, which led to the dispute being brought before the courts of both provinces. This court heard and summarily dismissed appeals from the two series of decisions that had followed, in which the lower courts had agreed with Hydro-Quebec on all points. See Newfoundland Attorney General and Churchill Falls Labrador Corp. 1988 Supreme Court of Canada decision, and see also Hydro-Quebec and Churchill Falls Labrador Corp., another 1988 Supreme Court decision. Second, in 1980, the province's legislature enacted a statute that provided for reversion to the government of the rights that had been assigned to CFL Co. in 1961. Another court challenge ensued. The Newfoundland and Labrador Court of Appeal declared the legislation to be valid, but this court unanimously held that it was ultra-virus the province because its pith and substance was to interfere with rights that, under contract, were situated in Quebec that is, the place where a party could bring an action for the enjoyment of those rights. See Reference Re Upper Churchill Water Rights Reversion Act, 1984 Supreme Court of Canada Decision. 21. At the same time, Hydro-Quebec and CFLO Co. began negotiations to settle their differences. The negotiations continued sporadically for several years, but the parties never reached an agreement to reopen the 1969 contract. Instead, they chose to enter into other contracts parallel to it. 22. Thus, in 1991, Hydro-Quebec undertook to purchase the balance of the plant's production capacity for a limited time. In 1998, the parties changed the conditions for the exercise of CFL Co.'s recapture right by agreeing that, for a period of time, CFL Co. would sell the electricity in question to NLH, which would resell it at a profit to Hydro-Quebec, under terms that were kept confidential. Since 2009, the electricity to which the conditions respecting the recapture right apply has been resold in other markets and exported through Hydro-Quebec transmission lines. The electricity to which the conditions respecting the recapture right apply has been resold in other markets and exported through Hydro-Quebec's transmission lines. Finally, in 1999, the party signed the Guaranteed Winter Availability Contract under which Hydro-Quebec received the assurance that the plant's production capacity would be available during the winter months in exchange for substantial additional revenue for CFL Co. Significantly, these last two contracts will expire at the same time as the power contract in 2041. 23. Despite all of these changes, the performance of the prestations provided for in the contract was generally problem-free. There is no mention in the record of any default by the parties or any disagreement over the interpretation or application of the words of the contract. The trial judge's understanding was that CFL Co. had received what it had asked for at the time of negotiations. The development strategy it had at the time was implemented smoothly. Brinco was able to complete the plant without having to invest its own funds and also remained CFL Co.'s majority shareholder, a strategy of which NLH is today the beneficiary, and CFL Co. received the return it anticipated and expected on its investment, as well as the other benefits conferred on it by the contract. 24. The foregoing is the backdrop to the proceedings now before the courts. This appeal is in fact the third one that has come before this court with respect to the scope of the power contract. In this regard, the trial judge noted that the government of Newfoundland and Labrador 
had undertaken to pay all costs of the litigation, and that the proceedings had been commenced shortly before CFL Co. had repaid in full the debt that had until then been guaranteed in part by Hydro-Quebec for the plant's construction costs. In his view, these proceedings were ultimately another unjustified attempt by the province to escape its contractual obligations and deprive Hydro-Quebec of the benefits to which it was entitled under the contract. Part 3. Judicial History Subpart A. Quebec Superior Court, 2014, QCCS 3590. Paragraph 25. On the basis of CFL Co.'s arguments, Justice Skolkoff identified four issues. He dealt with the first two issues together, framing them as follows. In the circumstances of the negotiation and signature of the power contract, and in light of subsequent events, was Hydro-Quebec, in refusing to negotiate the price for electricity, in breach of its duties of cooperation and good faith? If so, was it open to the court to intervene? 26. After canvassing the textbooks that review the translation, quote, new transactual morality, end quote, that flows from the application of the Civil Code of Quebec, and from obligations associated with the general duty of good faith, Justice Silkoff made note of Hydro-Quebec's objections that the binding force of contracts remains a central principle of Quebec law and that the duty of good faith cannot give rise to an obligation to share a profit that has been received legitimately. He expressed the view that, to answer the first two questions, he had to define the nature of the party's relationship as well as their legitimate expectations and to consider the possibility that those expectations had not been met. 27. Justice Silkoff found that CFL Co. had not discharged its burden of proof in this regard. In his opinion, neither the contract itself nor the circumstances in which it was signed indicated that the party's relationship was based on an equitable sharing of risks and benefits and required a tremendous level of cooperation, trust, and compromise. Although the party's attitude was one of cooperation after they signed the letter of intent, their final bargain was crystallized in the contract not in the letter of intent. In Justice Silkoff's view, the will of the parties was to fix electricity prices without permitting any recognition or judgment of the prestations in the future based on unexpected events that might occur in the course of the project. The fixed nature of the prices was precisely the benefit that Hydro-Quebec derived from the contract and that it legitimately expected to receive. CFL Co. could not therefore ask a court to deprive Hydro-Quebec of that benefit now. Hydro-Quebec had acted in good faith and in a spirit of fair play in complying with the contract, and there was no justification for reading in an implied duty to renegotiate and for disregarding the will of the parties. Justice Silkoff concluded from this that the intervention sought by CFL Co. was not warranted. 28. Having so decided, Justice Silkoff turned to the remedies being sought by CFL Co., including an order that the contract quite simply be reciliated, a declaration that Hydro-Quebec had a duty to renegotiate the contract, or an order revising the contract to include in it an indexing formula for electricity prices suggested by CFL Co. He found that, in light of his conclusions on the first two issues, CFL Co. was entitled to none of the remedies it was seeking. He also observed that it would have been necessary to reject 
the proposed indexing formula at any rate because of methodological deficiencies and inconsistencies. 29. Finally, Justice Silkoff found that, in any event, CFL Co.'s action was prescribed. He rejected CFL Co.'s argument that Hydro-Quebec's refusal to renegotiate the contract was a continuing fault because CFL Co. was asserting a personal right that allegedly arose out of changes in the electricity market, the most recent of which had occurred at the latest in 1997. The action had been prescribed since 2000. Subpart B. Quebec Court of Appeal, 2016 QCCA 1229, paragraph 30. A panel of five judges of the Quebec Court of Appeal unanimously dismissed CFL Co.'s appeal. 31. The Court of Appeal began by finding that Justice Silkoff had made no palpable and overriding error in assessing the evidence. It rejected CFL Co.'s argument that the expectation of parties to a long-term contract must be established in light of what is foreseeable. In this case, the evidence showed that the parties had set electricity prices on the basis not of the electricity market and the foreseeability of long-term trends in that market, but on other factors. These factors included the cost of construction of the plant, the fact that production costs for hydroelectricity are low and stable once the plant has been built, which Hydro-Quebec wanted to be reflected in the prices it would pay, and CFL Co.'s need for a substantial inflow of money at the beginning of the contract. 32. The Court of Appeal added that the trial judge's findings that the parties had decided to have Hydro-Quebec bear the risks related to the fluctuations in electricity prices and had intentionally chosen not to include a price adjustment clause in the contract were firmly supported by the evidence. It accordingly rejected the argument that the equilibrium of the contract had been disrupted by unforeseeable changes in the market. The parties' prestations were not defined by reference to market conditions, and the contract clearly allocated the risks associated with possible changes in these conditions. In short, the Court of Appeal found that the alleged unforeseeability was not relevant in the case and had not in fact been established. 33. Next, the Court of Appeal pointed out that the two parties had articulated the central question of law in the case in very different ways. C.F.L. argued that good faith tempers the principle of the binding force of contracts and that the parties to a relational contract have a duty to cooperate, which may, in certain circumstances, give rise to a duty to modify the contract. Hydro-Quebec contended that CFL Co. was in reality relying on the doctrine of unforeseeability. That doctrine, according to which a party can be required to renegotiate a contract should a sudden change in circumstances make the contract too onerous for the other party, is not recognized in Quebec civil law. 34. 34. On this subject, the Court of Appeal reviewed the debates that had led up to the enactment of the Code. It noted that the Civil Code Revision Office had suggested introducing a doctrine of unforeseeability as part of a series of recommendations made to the legislature that were intended to make contract law fairer and more equitable, but that this suggestion had not been adopted. The doctrine is accordingly not provided for in the Code. However, the Court of Appeal found that there is nothing to prevent the development of judge-made law on unforeseeability in specific cases where the legislature has left the door open for a court to intervene to deal with abuse or unreasonable conduct. 35. With this in mind, the Court of Appeal, noting that CFLO Co. was arguing that good faith sometimes requires one contracting party to help another party 
remedy his or her problems, recognize that there may occasionally be situations, hypothetical at least, in which good faith and unforeseeability overlap. In the instant case, however, the court found that Hydro-Quebec had met the obligations flowing from its general duty of good faith. There was no indication that it had acted in bad faith. Looking out for the interests of the other contracting party does not require a party to sacrifice his or her own interests. Because Hydro-Quebec had not derived an unfair advantage, and had not committed any abuse of right by insisting on adhering to the words of the contract, the Court of Appeal found that it could not intervene. 36. Finally, as a matter of doctrinal interest, the Court of Appeal considered the characteristics of the doctrine of unforeseeability as it exists in other civil law jurisdictions. But the Court pointed out that, in any event, the doctrine would not apply in this case without an increase in CFL Co.'s costs of performance or a decrease in the value of the counter-prestation it received. In the final analysis, the Court of Appeal found that CFL Co. was essentially arguing that the contract was illusionary on the basis that it resulted in an excessive benefit for Hydro-Quebec. There is quite simply no support for that argument in Quebec civil law, as a lesion is generally available only to minors and protected persons of full age. Part 4. Issues. Paragraph 37. The appeal ultimately raises one central question. Can CFL Co. require Hydro-Quebec to renegotiate the power contract because of unforeseeable changes in the electricity market since the contract was signed? On this point, CFL Co argues that the trial judge erred in characterizing and interpreting the party's contractual relationship and in assessing the role of good faith in contractual matters. 38. If this principal question is answered in the affirmative, two subsidiary questions arise. Can this court grant the relief sought by CFL Co? If so, is CFL Co's action nonetheless prescribed? 39. In my opinion, CFL Co.'s arguments with respect to both the basis for its claims and the relief it seeks find no support, either in the evidence the trial judge considered and accepted, or in the Quebec civil law. I am also of the view that CFL Co.'s action in this case is prescribed. In short, the appeal must be dismissed no matter what approach is taken. Part 5. Analysis Subpart A. Claim for Renegotiation of the Contract Paragraph 40. CFL Co. argues that, given the nature of the contract and the party's duties of good faith and equity, Hydro-Quebec has a duty to renegotiate the contract when the contract proved to be an unanticipated source of substantial profits for it. CFL Co. adds that the contract must be renegotiated so as to allocate the profits more equitably between the parties. It therefore seeks an order that, at a minimum, the contract be renegotiated and modified on the basis of a price adjustment formula it itself has devised in order to force Hydro-Quebec to share part of the profits Hydro-Quebec earns in reselling the electricity purchased under the contract, or, in the alternative, that the contract be resiliated. 41. In support of its position, CFL Co., begins by raising factual arguments relating to the characterization, the content, and the interpretation of the contract. It submits that the contract is a relational contract akin to a joint venture. In its opinion, the parties always intended to prioritize cooperation 
and the equitable sharing of the risks and benefits associated with the project. But a number of unforeseen events fundamentally altered the nature of the electricity market and, as a result, the equilibrium of the party's prestations. CFL Co. adds that the contract cannot be considered to have dealt with the risk of electricity price fluctuations as radical as the ones that have occurred since the 1980s. Such fluctuations were impossible to foresee in 1969. 42. As will be shown below, however, this characterization conflicts with the words of the contract and disregards some crucial facts relating to the intention of the parties at the time they entered into it. The evidence does not show that the parties intended to jointly assume responsibility for the project or to create a flexible legal relationship. Rather, it shows that they intended to agree on specific prestations. The evidence also shows that the parties clearly intended Hydro-Quebec to bear most of the risks associated with the development of the plant, including the risk of electricity price fluctuations, however large they might be. On this point, as the Court of Appeal correctly noted, the trial judge made no palpable and overriding error that might warrant intervention. His determinative finding concerning the paradigm of the contract, namely that its fixed prices and long-term were precisely the benefits Hydro-Quebec was seeking in 1969, is strongly supported by the evidence he considered. 43. Next, CFL Co. submits that, as a matter of law, Hydro-Quebec cannot receive such profits without being required to distribute part of them to the other contracting party, relying in support of this argument sometimes on the general duty of good faith that is recognized in Quebec civil law and sometimes on implied duties under the contract based on equity. CFL Co. maintains that there is a general duty to cooperate recognized by commentators and by courts that gives rise to a duty to renegotiate the contract and, by extension, a duty for Hydro-Quebec to share the profits it makes under the contract. But as Hydro-Quebec rightly notes, CFL Co. is thus essentially asserting a right to require renegotiation of a contract on the basis of unforeseeability. With respect, none of CFL Co.'s legal arguments on this point withstand scrutiny or are persuasive and none of them can refute the inescapable conclusion that the contract entitles Hydro-Quebec to insist on adhering to the words of the contract and maintaining the equilibrium of the prestations it establishes for the benefit of the parties, which bound themselves knowing full well what they were doing. To accept CFL Co.'s argument would be to deprive Hydro-Quebec of the principal benefits it derives from the contract. 44. Before I discuss this central question in the appeal any further, there is a comment about the applicable law that must be made. The power contract, which provides for its automatic renewal 40 years after the plant has been installed and is in service at full capacity, was entered into in 1969. At issue, therefore, is a contractual situation that existed at the time of the coming into force of the Code in 1994. See Section 4 of the Act respecting the implementation of the reform of the Civil Code. This means that the contract is not governed entirely by the new legislation. Among other things, the supplementary rules that serve to determine the scope of the party's obligation, including Articles 1431 and 1434 of the Civil Code of Quebec, on which CFL Co. relies to guide the interpretation of the contract, do not apply. See Section 4, Paragraph 1 of the Act respecting the implementation of the reform of the Civil Code, AIRCC. However, 
Those two articles are substantially similar to the antecedent articles in the Civil Code of Lower Canada, Articles 1020 and 1024. The analysis of the party's legal situation is therefore the same under the former code as under the current one. Because the parties agree on this point, I will refer only to the articles of the code in this regard. The provisions of the code governing the existence of rights and the performance of obligations do apply to the contract, however. See section 4, paragraph 2 of the AIRCC. These include the articles that provide for a duty of a party to act in good faith and exercising rights and performing contractual obligations. Subsection 1. The Contract. Paradigm, Characterization, and the Content. Paragraph 45. Where the factual analysis is concerned, CFL Co.'s arguments are predicated on the importance, which in its view has been underestimated, of the circumstances in which the parties entered into the contract. CFL Co. submits that the difference between the electricity market in the late 1960s and the electricity market of today is so significant and so radical that it is appropriate to describe the transition from one to the other as a true paradigm shift. The entirety of its reasoning revolves around this. The key point in its case. CFL Co. argues that this paradigm, which it describes as a regulatory and market paradigm, meant that Quebec was in the late 1960s the only electricity market to which Newfoundland and Labrador had access, that electricity was seen as a public good rather than as a source of profits, and that given the low cost of energy in the marketplace, a substantial increase in the price of electricity was not really conceivable for the parties. Also, it would have been difficult for the parties to the contract to imagine a different regulatory and market paradigm. 46. In CFL Co.'s view, this reality dictated the project's financing structure and the model for allocating the risks and benefits contemplated in the contract. The parties really intended to create a relational joint venture contract. They agreed on a contract that would have given each party a fair share of the value of the hydroelectric power produced at Churchill Falls had the circumstances not changed so radically. CFL Co. argues that it is only because of the radical shift in the market paradigm that the true nature of the contract is now obscured, and that its words seem to allocate the risks and benefits as defined by Justice Silkoff. If Justice Silkoff had characterized a contract in light of the regulatory context and market conditions, he would have recognized that the parties had entered into a relational joint venture contract. Given the very nature of such contracts and the resulting implied duties under the power contract, CFL Co. believes that Hydro-Quebec had a duty to renegotiate the contract and to agree to a redistribution of the profits it earns under it. 47. This reasoning leads CFL Co. to argue that, because a paradigm shift in the electricity market could not have been imagined at the time the contract was signed, Justice Silkoff also erred in finding that the parties might even have formed a common intention that the contract would govern the sale of electricity produced at Churchill Falls in this new context. By failing to draw the proper inferences from the key facts, Justice Silkoff once again erred in interpreting the contract. 48. I wish to mention, first of all, that neither party is alleging any defect in the formation of the contract, and CFL co-acknowledges that it is not pleading lesion. Given that the parties' respective prestations were in equilibrium at the time they entered into contract, indeed, rating, indeed raising lesion would serve no purpose, 
as the code, like its predecessor I might add, clearly provides that lesion generally vitiates consent only with respect to minors and protected persons of full age. Moreover, the fact that the contract is clearly a contract by mutual agreement means that CFL Co. cannot argue that the contract contains abusive clauses or require that the contract be interpreted in its favor. 49. That being said, it should be borne in mind that, in this case, both the interpretation and the characterization of the contract are questions of mixed fact and law. Are questions of mixed fact and law. See Unipri Inc. and Gestion Goslin et Berubay Inc. 2017 SCC 43. See also Satva Capital Corp. and Creston Molly Corp. 2014 SCC 53. Because the trial judge's interpretation and characterization of the contract are based on a particular set of circumstances that are unlikely to have any precedential value, they may not be overturned absent a palpable and overriding error. See Hausen and Nicolaisen, 2002, SCC 33. 50. My colleague maintains that this is not so. In his opinion, the characterization of the contract, having regard to a relational component, is in this case a pure question of law. On this basis, he substitutes his own interpretation of the party's intention for that of the trial judge, even assessing the evidence himself. In doing so, my colleague ultimately rejects Justice Silkoff's assessment of the documentary, testimonial, and expert evidence on which the latter relied in defining the central paradigm of the contract, which in Justice Silkoff's view repudiates the existence of this relational component alleged by CFL Co. 51. I disagree with the underlying premise of my colleague's analysis. In this court's recent decision in Unipri, the majority reviewed the principles applicable to the characterization of a contract in Quebec civil law. For the purposes of this appeal, it will suffice to consider the following points. 1. Quote, it is the classification of the contract based on the rules that apply to it, the conditions that apply to its formation, its object, and how it is performed, that makes it possible to define the nature of the contract and thereby determine how it should be characterized. End quote. 2. Quote, it is inappropriate to view this characterization of the contract as a purely objective exercise, as this, translation, crucial operation for the judge, end translation, can be accomplished only by, quote, seeking to identify the parties, end quote, true intention in this regard, end quote. Three, quote, to characterize a contract, the court must thus consider not only translation, Quote, the obligations and other effects of the contract that the parties have stipulated, end quote, but also, quote, in some cases, the circumstances of its formation and how they have applied it, end quote, end quote. And four, quote, the characterization of a contract can depend on evidence of the party's common intention as regards its nature and its content. And when it is necessary to consider evidence of that intention, the Quebec Court of Appeal rightly recognizes that in such cases, the characterization of the contract is a question of mixed fact and law. End quote. 52. This is the very type of thorough exercise that the trial judge carried out in the instant case, and that the Court of Appeal reviewed in detail in its decision. To say that the courts below did not consider the evidence, whether intrinsic or extrinsic to the contract, 
in order to define the nature of the parties' contractual relationship on the basis of their common intention, would be to disregard dozens of paragraphs of the reasons of the Superior Court and the Court of Appeal. I will merely observe that Justice Silkoff's contextual analysis runs from paragraph 450 to paragraph 451 of his reasons, and it served as the basis for his subsequent decision on the nature of the parties' contractual relationship. See paragraphs 542 to 569. The conclusions he drew from it, including those set out in paragraphs 553 and 556, were largely based on the whole of that evidence. 53. In my view, CFL Co.'s various arguments relating to the context of the contract do not reveal any error on Justice Silkhoff's part that would justify overturning his findings of fact concerning the paradigm, the characterization, and the interpretation of the contract. The same can be said, contrary to CFL Co.'s contention, with respect to the trial judge's conclusion on assessing the evidence that the alleged unforeseeable changes had not taken place. Regardless of whether one accepts that the changes in question were radical, C.F.L. Co.'s arguments are incidental with Justice Silkoff's findings of fact on the issue of the choices made by the parties to manage the risks and uncertainties associated with the project. It follows that the first factual aspect of C.F.L. Co.'s position on the central question of the appeal must fail. Sub-sub-section A Paradigm of the Contract, Paragraph 54. On completing his review of the content of, and clauses of the contract, the trial judge concluded that the contract specifically allocated the risks and benefits of the project. After considering all of the relevant facts, he quoted a passage from the report of an expert, Mr. Laperta, to describe the contractual paradigm, the central vision of the transaction model as follows, quote, Hydro-Quebec accepted significant risks, but it enjoyed cost certainty and protection against inflation, while CFL Co. secured the ability to raise large amounts of debt and to earn a relatively secure return on investment, and Brinco retained a majority equity position, end quote. 55. In short, Justice Silkoff found, as follows on the fundamental obligations that characterize this inanimate contract, which includes Hydro-Quebec's right to fix costs. Hydro-Quebec agreed to assume the risks associated with the project so that Brinco could finance a plant by raising debt rather than issuing shares, and CFL Co. could obtain long-term revenue security to reassure its creditors. In agreeing to provide financing to CFL Co., in the event of cost overruns and to purchase electricity whether it needed it or not, Hydro-Quebec afforded CFL Co. the possibility of being relatively well protected against the risk of lower returns on its investment and lower electricity prices. In exchange for the risks it assumed, Hydro-Quebec obtained prices that were lower on average than the prices it would have to pay had it had to pursue other projects. Hydro-Quebec would receive that benefit at the end of the contract in particular as the prices were higher at the beginning to satisfy CFL Co.'s need for cash at the time. But this decreasing price structure suited Hydro-Quebec, which in this way obtained a long-term guarantee of fixed prices. The clear result was therefore that Hydro-Quebec would bear any losses or receive any profits flowing from fluctuations in electricity prices. 56. CFL Co. in fact argued at trial, and argues again in this court, 
that the meaning of the clause of the contract that fixes electricity prices is unclear, which would mean that the contract is essentially ambiguous. Justice Silkoff resolved this alleged ambiguity by considering, in particular, the evidence presented by the two parties on the circumstances in which the contract was concluded. His interpretation rested on a determinative finding of fact, namely that the parties had intentionally chosen not to include a price adjustment formula in the contract. That finding was based in part on the minutes of the joint meeting of the executive committees of the board of directors of Brinco and CFL Co., at which Hydro-Quebec's request that the contract be renewed for 25 years was discussed. Those minutes indicate that the members of the two committees believed that it would be impossible for CFL Co. to try to limit the scope of the renewal by suggesting that the price of electricity be adjusted by way of indexation without depriving the extension of any meaningful effect for Hydro-Quebec. Justice Silkoff also found that there was no evidence to support the opposite position advanced by CFL Co., that the absence of such a formula had instead resulted from the party's failure to consider the possibility of a change in the market. 57. The choice to fix electricity prices and to have Hydro-Quebec assume the risk that those prices would after some time be higher or lower than market prices helped to shape a final agreement that, as the party saw it, properly allocated the risks and benefits associated with the project. Justice Silkoff noted that the evidence which was not in fact seriously contested by CFL Co., led to the conclusion that the terms fixing the prices to be paid for electricity reflected the risks assumed by Hydro-Quebec under the contract. One of CFL Co.'s experts even described this allocation of risks and benefits as reasonable, and Justice Silkoff found, quote, based upon the uncontradicted credible evidence, end quote, that the parties had agreed to this allocation, believing it to be mutually beneficial. 58. Given the absence of any palpable and overriding error by the trial judge on this point, the fundamental premise for CFL Co.'s position with regard to the nature of the contract cannot be accepted. To accept CFL Co.'s view that the words of the contract are based on the regulatory and market considerations it has identified and do not reflect the party's intention outside those specific circumstances would be inconsistent with the trial judge's interpretation of the evidence in determining his understanding of the contract. Yet the trial judge's understanding of the contract, which the Court of Appeal accepted, is what must guide the analysis. Sub subsection B. Characterization of the contract. Paragraph 59. In this court, CFL co-argues, as it did in the Court of Appeal, that the contract is a relational contract. It also submits that the party's agreement created a common project, which is characteristic of a joint venture. I do not accept these submissions. They are not supported by the evidence, nor do they overcome Justice Silkoff's findings of fact concerning the paradigm of the power contract. Sub 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 section 1. The contract is not a joint venture. Paragraph 60. CFL Co. argues that, because the parties intended to combine their resources to carry out a major project, and intended to share in the benefits of the venture equitably, they entered into a contract akin to a joint venture. In Quebec civil law, the joint venture, which is a common law concept, is sometimes referred to in French using the term co-entreprise or groupement momentané d'entreprise or consortium of businesses. C. B. La Rochelle et C. Bouchard, 
Contrat de Société et d'Association, 3rd edition, 2012. See also V. Karim, Le Consortium d'Entreprise, Joint Venture, Nature et Structure Juridique, Rapport Contractuel, Partage des Responsabilités, Modes Alternatifs de Règlement des Différences, Médiation et Arbitrage. 2016. However, this concept does not necessarily reflect a particular legal form. Swan, Bala, and Adamski define a joint venture as, quote, a business relation which may take a variety of legal forms or structures, end quote, from A. Swan, N. C. Bala, J. Adamski, Contracts, Cases, Notes, and Materials, 9th edition, 2015. See also C. Bouchard. Les rapprochements entre la Société de Persons et le Partnership. Une étude du droit comparé canadien. 2001 article in C.D.D. According to some, a joint venture in the common law context is in fact merely a partnership, an entity that resembles a civil law partnership that is limited in time to a single project. See R. Flanagan, The Legal Status of the Joint Venture, 2009, Alberta Law Review. 61. As some authors explain, the Quebec courts therefore tend to liken a joint venture contract to a contract of undeclared partnership. See Bouchard. See also M. Gwinnett, Les Différentes Formes d'Entreprise au Canada, 2015. But the code provides that the essential elements of a contract of partnership are the combining of resources to carry on an activity and the sharing of any resulting profits. See Article 2186, Paragraph 1. A joint venture is thus formed where businesses choose to become partners and to cooperate in a project by each investing resources and by sharing any profits from the project. A separate partnership is then created until, among other possibilities, the project is completed and the partners can be held liable for one another's undertakings and debts. See Articles 2253 to 2255 of the Civil Code of Quebec. 62. That being the case, the absence of facts indicating that the parties intended to enter into a partnership is fatal to CFL Co.'s argument that equates the contract with a contractual relationship of that nature. Moreover, Although CFL Co. and Hydro-Quebec each invested resources in the project, the evidence does not show that they transferred the ownership or enjoyment of these resources to anyone or that the resources were placed at the complete disposal of the other party to the contract. See Articles 2199 and 2251 of the Civil Code of Quebec. 63. It is true that some authors support the existence of a sui generis contract of joint venture in Quebec law. For example, Professor Karim states that a contract in which an intention to enter into a partnership is not expressed, but that otherwise signals an intention to combine resources and share responsibility for a project, is precisely what defines a joint venture. See Karim, 2016. See also La Rochelle and Bouchard. However, he notes that care must be taken to distinguish this sui generis contract from other forms of contract, such as the subcontract. Translation, quote, 
The fact that each of two or more businesses takes on part of the work for a specified price while cooperating as needed to carry out the various parts of the project will not suffice to justify a finding that they have agreed to a joint venture. It is an intention to jointly assume the responsibility involved in carrying out the proposed project that is the determining factor in establishing that such an agreement exists. End quote. 64. This other definition of the joint venture concept is of no assistance to CFL Co. in this case, given that the evidence also does not really show that the parties intended to jointly assume financial or logistical responsibility for the project beyond the simple cooperation required to perform their respective prestations. In this regard, Justice Silkoff determined that the parties had entered into a contract that transferred to Hydro-Quebec the financial risks that would ordinarily have been borne by CFL Co., and that they had done so after carefully analyzing the risks they were assuming and the benefits they could obtain by way of an agreement. One purpose of the contract was to shelter CFL Co. almost entirely from possible negative consequences. This clearly does not indicate any intention to share responsibility for the project. Quite the contrary. In addition, while it is true that the contract provided for some cooperation between the parties, for example with respect to the management and operation of the plant, and to financing, the terms of that cooperation are predefined, and what the parties are responsible for in each part of the project was predetermined. 65. I therefore find, without taking a position on the precise legal nature of what is known as a joint venture contract in Quebec civil law, that the parties' relationship lacks the characteristics generally associated with that form of arrangement. There is no indication that the risks were allocated equally and that the parties therefore intended to jointly assume full responsibility for the project. The contract clearly defines the respective obligations and the specific risks to be assumed by each of them. Justice Silkoff cannot be faulted for not considering the words of the contract in light of the circumstances of the electricity market in the 1960s, which would have supported CFL Co.'s argument regarding the existence of a context of cooperation and equitable sharing. It was open to him to interpret the words of the contract and the events surrounding its negotiations at face value. Sub 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 section 3. The contract is not a relational contract. Paragraph 66. From the same perspective, CFL Co. also argues that the Court of Appeal erred in not finding that the contract has the distinctive characteristics of a relational contract. This argument is similar to the one based on the existence of a joint venture and is to some extent a variation on the same theme. CFL Co. relies on the relational nature of its contract with Hydro-Quebec to support its argument that the parties owe each other the highest duties of cooperation and good faith. On this point, it submits not that the parties always intended to share the profits, but that they always had a duty to do so because of the nature of their relationship. As this court noted in Bassin and Herenu, 2014, SCC 71, the cooperation required by relational contracts is, in the end, more active than the cooperation required by transaction-based contracts. See also J. L. Guadouin and P. G. Jobin, Les Obligations, 7th edition, 2013, by P. G. Jobin and N. Vizina, 67. Professor Belly defines the relational contract as follows. Translation. Quote, to begin, 
A relational contract can roughly be defined as a contract that sets out the rules for a close cooperation that the parties wish to maintain over the long term. End quote. J. G. Belly, Théories et pratiques du contrat relationnel, les obligations de coopération et de harmonisation normative, in Meredith Lectures, 1998 to 1999. The Continued Relevance of the Law of Obligations, Retour aux Sources, 2000. For example, a master agreement which defers the negotiation of certain prestations is a contract whose main purpose is to establish and affirm the existence of a relationship and the parties undertaking to expand on it and set out its details in the future. See Baudouin, Jobin, and Vezina. See also C. Lebrun, Le Devoir de Coopération Durant l'Execution du Contrat, 2013. Contracts of employment, subcontracts, and franchise agreements are also referred to as examples of relational contracts. See Belly. 68. Professor Belly is of the view that, in essence, Relational contracts provide for economic coordination as opposed to setting out a series of defined prestations. It is a corollary to add the emphasis on the parties' relationship that their respective prestations are not defined in much detail. Professor Roland discusses the role the courts were required to play in order to ensure that master agreements that, to give one example, did not contain a sale price, were not considered incomplete and therefore null. See L. Roland. Les figures contemporaines du contrat et le code civil du Québec, 1999 McGill Law Journal. Along the same lines, in Duncan Brands Canada Limited and Bertico Inc., 2015 QCCA 624, the Quebec Court of Appeal stated that the relational nature of a franchise agreement was apparent from the fact that its terms were not stipulated. Quote, Indeed. It is only when one recognizes the incomplete account of the party's rights and obligations, given by the explicit terms of the contracts, that the true nature of the arrangement, an innominate contract for a franchise based on a relationship of long-term collaboration between independent businesses, becomes apparent. End quote. 69. CFL Co. proposes its own definition of a relational contract, the characteristics of which can, in its opinion, be seen in the power contract. A long-term contract between independent parties that requires a high degree of trust and cooperation. With respect, this definition seems misleading to me, and in fact serves to sidestep the essential point. As the Court of Appeal noted, although the party's relationship reflects a certain independence and the contract is of long duration, these facts alone do not indicate that their agreement has a relational element that would justify imposing heightened duties of good faith on them. The power contract does indeed have a very long term, but the various prestations owed for the whole of that term have been defined with precision since day one. It is a synalogmatic contract, see Article 1380 of the Civil Code of Quebec, which is a de facto sign that the prestations and thus the parties are interdependent, but the parties chose to structure that dependence carefully and to define its limits. Each signatory's participation in the Churchill Farth project was clearly quantified and determined, and no important prestations were left undefined. 
This shows that the parties intended the project to proceed according to the words of the contract, not on the basis of their ability to agree and cooperate from day to day to fill any gaps in the contract. 70. CFL Co. nonetheless suggests that that account should be taken of the limits on the human ability to foresee the very diverse circumstances in which a contract may come to apply, which may be even more diverse in the case of a long-term contract. I do not find this argument convincing. Such limits are undeniable. It is true that they may sometimes motivate people or businesses to include review or renegotiation clauses in their contracts. However, it is just as possible, and just as legitimate, for parties to long-term contracts to favor certainty over flexibility. As Luel and Moore observe, it is plausible to assume that parties who enter into a long-term contract have chosen to do so specifically to give their project stability and predictability should unforeseen events occur. See D. Luel and B. Moore, Droit des Obligations, 2nd edition, 2012. I would add that this is particularly true of sophisticated parties like the ones in this case. 71. In short, the long-term, interdependent nature of the contractual relationship does not in itself imply that the basic principle of the contract, the one that structures and underlies its main prestations, is that of a relationship of cooperation between parties. The power contract sets out a series of defined and detailed prestations as opposed to providing for flexible economic coordination. It is not, therefore, a relational contract. Once again, this conclusion does not depend on the characteristics of the electricity market at the time the contract was entered into. The argument that the context of that market was different does not suffice to justify overruling Justice Silkoff's analysis of the paradigm of the contract and his findings that the parties had intended Hydro-Quebec to bear the risk of price fluctuations. Sub-sub-sub-section 3. An implied renegotiation clause in the contract. Paragraph 72. CFL Co. also relies on his arguments about the nature of the power contract to support a contention that the contract contains implied clauses that impose on Hydro-Quebec a duty to cooperate and to renegotiate the agreed-on prices. In this regard, CFL Co. cites Article 1434 of the Civil Code of Quebec, which reads as follows, quote, A contract validly formed binds the parties who have entered into it not only as to what they have expressed in it, but also as to what is incident to it, according to its nature and in conformity with usage, equity, or law, end quote. 73. On this basis, CFL Co. urges this court to hold that it is necessary, in light of the structure and logic of the power contract, that the contract require the parties to renegotiate it or to share the profits they receive in certain circumstances. Given that I do not accept CFL Co.'s arguments concerning the characterization of the contract, there is clearly no need to determine whether the contract implicitly contains a clause imposing such duties. Such a clause cannot be implied from the nature of the contract as described by the trial judge. 74. Moreover, the following observations with respect to the implied duties reinforce the conclusion that CFL Co.'s arguments concerning the nature of the contract must fail and that the trial judge did not err in declining to characterize the contract as a joint venture contract or a relational contract. An implied duty may, within the meaning of Article 1434 of the Civil Code of Quebec, be incident to a contract according to the nature of the contract, if the contract's coherency seems to require such a duty, 
and if the duty is consistent with the general scheme of the contract. An implied clause providing for such a duty must not merely add duties to the contract that might enhance it, but must fill a gap in the terms of the contract. See Luel and Moore at number 1542. See also Boudouin, Jobin, and Vezina at number 431. See also J. Pinot, D. Berman, and S. Godet. Théry des Obligations, 4th edition, 2001, by J. Pinot and S. Godet. In such a case, it can be presumed that the clause reflects the party's intention, which is inferred from their, from their choice to enter into a given type of contract. See Duncan Brands. See also Luel and Moore. See also Boudouin, Jobin, and Vezina. As Boudouin, Jobin, and Vezina state on the subject of the implied duty, translation, contractual fairness must be achieved neither to the detriment of predictability in the law nor by means of artificial solutions, end quote. 75. In the case at bar, there is nothing to suggest that the party's prestations would be incomprehensible and would have no basis or meaningful effect in the absence of an implied duty according to which Hydro-Quebec must either exceed the usual requirements of good faith in cooperating with CFL Co. or redistribute windfall profits. The contract governs the financing of the plant and the sale of electricity produced there, and also strictly regulates the quantity of electricity to be provided by CFL Co. and the price to be paid by Hydro-Quebec. The meaningful effect of the sale for the parties is clearly identifiable. Hydro-Quebec obtains electricity, while CFL Co. receives the price paid for it. The fact that the price might not be in line with market prices does not destroy the very logic behind the sale or deprive it of any meaningful effect. Furthermore, the benefits each party derives from the sale are related to the other prestations associated with the construction of the plant. There is no gap or omission in the scheme of the contract that requires this court to read an implied duty into the contract in order to make it coherent. 76. The trial judge defined the paradigm of the contract. His articulation of that paradigm is consistent with the words of the contract and with his assessment of the relevant evidence. Moreover, the paradigm as articulated reflects the equilibrium being sought by the parties from the outset. CFL Co.'s arguments that the judge mischaracterized the contract and that there are implied duties under it are contrary to these findings of fact. The omission alleged against the trial judge that of failing to view the contract in light of the circumstances of the electricity market of the 1960s has no impact on the analysis, given that the evidence concerning the negotiation that led to the contract and the words of the contract itself provides no support for interpreting it as a joint venture contract or a relational contract. The conflicting interpretations proposed by CFL Co. cannot override the judge's findings on the allocation of risks between the parties as stipulated in the contract, and on the benefits flowing from it, particularly for Hydro-Quebec. I would note that my colleague's application of his conception of the relational nature of the contract at paragraphs 180 to 183 actually amounts to a summary reassessment of what the parties intended the central paradigm of the contract to be that is based on an interpretation of the evidence, both intrinsic and extrinsic, that the trial judge did not in fact accept.
Sub sub section C. Unforeseeability of the changes in the electricity market. Paragraph 77. The alleged unforeseeability of the changes in the electricity market also underpins the other branch of CFL Co.'s factual argument. CFL Co. submits that the trial judge was wrong to find that the risk associated with fluctuations in electricity prices was intended to be borne by Hydro-Quebec, arguing that that finding of fact is incompatible with the regulatory and market paradigm CFL Co. proposes as the initial context for the contract. Because it was impossible in 1969 for the parties to foresee the changes that were to soon occur in this market, it was impossible for the contract to deal with the new reality. Therefore, in CFL Co.'s view, although the contract does seem to fix electricity prices on a continuing basis until 2041, its clauses would allocate only certain specific risks, that is, those that could be anticipated in the late 1960s. Those terms were never intended to apply to the parties conduct in circumstances in which one of them benefits from the contract by reaping substantial profits as a result of it. Justice Silkoff therefore erred in finding that the parties had formed an agreement of wills concerning a situation that they could not have foreseen at the time they entered into the contract. 76. In support of its argument, CFL Co. relies on Article 1431 of the Civil Code of Quebec, which it submits Justice Silkoff failed to consider. Quote, the clauses of a contract cover only what it appears that the parties intended to include, however general the terms used. End quote. Thus, because the parties would presumably not have proposed to enter into a contract in relation to a fact situation they could not foresee, the clauses of the contract, despite the generality of the language that was used, cannot extend to or be understood as relating to that fact situation. 79. I do not agree with this argument. First of all, CFL Co. cannot rely on the article in question, which relates to contractual interpretation, unless the contract is ambiguous. See Unipri, Inc. But that is not the case. Section 8.1 of the contract and Section 7.1 of Schedule 3 to the contract, the renewed power contract, provide that Hydro-Quebec was to pay for electricity at a fixed price for a specified period of time. Once that period had lapsed, it was to pay a new fixed price for a new specified period of time, and so on. A cursory review of the contract's clauses and of their context is enough to justify a conclusion that the parties intended to fix the price of electricity for the entire term of the contract. Despite the changes in market circumstances, the contract's clauses have a precise, identifiable meaning. The lack of ambiguity means that Article 1431 of the Civil Code of Quebec cannot be applied in this case. 80. Next, and more importantly, the trial judge found from the evidence that the parties intended to allocate their risk of price fluctuations and that there was an agreement of wills on this point. Justice Silkoff accepted the opinion of an expert, Mr. Laperta, on the question whether the changes in the electricity market had been foreseeable. He agreed that, quote, participants in the debate explicitly recognized uncertainty, end quote, and that, quote, the parties knew that the future was uncertain and that future prices were a known unknown, end quote. In short, the judge's understanding of the evidence was that the parties had considered this risk and that one of the objectives of the contract was to allocate the risk. CFL Co. argues that the risk materialized as a result of extraordinary events 
and that the price fluctuations were larger than what the parties had expected at the time they negotiated the contract. That is not determinative, however. The risk of price fluctuations, a known variable, was allocated by the contract. Everyone agreed that it was a variable whose value was, by definition, unknown. The timing, direction, and magnitude of the fluctuations were known unknowns, variables that were known but indeterminate. The parties were fully aware of this reality, but they nonetheless made a firm commitment without including a price adjustment clause, which confirms that the contract was to apply regardless of the magnitude of the fluctuations. 81. There is no palpable and overriding error in the trial judge's finding on this point. Justice Silkoff correctly noted that the parties had expressed their intention that the contract governed their relationship in the event that electricity prices fluctuated. Furthermore, it is paradoxical that CFL Co. focuses on the fluctuations being so extreme as to cause a serious disruption of and imbalance in the contractual relationship. By insisting that this justifies ordering the parties to renegotiate the contract, CFL Co. is in reality basing its position on the doctrine of unforeseeability. And that is in fact the essence of Hydro-Quebec's argument regarding the legal basis for CFL Co.'s approach, to which I will turn in the paragraphs below. Subsection D. Conclusion on the Factual Analysis. Paragraph 82. In sum, the error CFLO Co. argues that Justice Silkoff made in defining the paradigm of the contract, characterizing the contract, and assessing the alleged unforeseeability changes have not been established. The parties did not intend to jointly assume responsibility in relation to the project. They did not intend to create a legal relationship whose specific elements would be defined sometime later. They did not agree that Hydro-Quebec would bear the risk of price fluctuations only to a certain extent. On the contrary, their undertaking was definite and firm, and was for the long term. All of these findings of fact are strongly supported by the evidence. They are in no way altered if the words of the contract are considered in light of the regulatory and market context in which it was concluded. Justice Silkoff's conclusion, with respect to the paradigm of the contract, accurately reflects both the party's intention and the equilibrium that was initially sought, and subsequently attained and maintained and was never disturbed. Subpart 2. Unforeseeability and Good Faith Paragraph 83. As for the legal analysis, independently of the lack of any factual basis for a duty to renegotiate the power contract or to redefine how the benefits each party derives from it are shared, CFL Co. argues that Hydro-Quebec is in any event legally required to renegotiate the contract. According to this argument, Hydro-Quebec's duty to do so is rooted in the concepts of good faith and equity, which, in Quebec civil law, condition the exercise of the rights created by any type of contract. These concepts thus prevent Hydro-Quebec from relying on the words of the contract because to do so, in circumstances in which the contract effectively provides for disproportionate prestations, would be contrary to its duty to act in good faith and in accordance with equity. And given that the prestations owed by the parties have been disproportionate since the changes in the market occurred, Hydro-Quebec has been violating its duties related to good faith since then by refusing to renegotiate the contract. 84. In this regard, CFL Co. insists that it is not pleading the doctrine of unforeseeability, but it is clear that CFL Co.'s submissions in this court 
closely resemble that doctrine and that they all echo its central theme. Although the contract was originally fair and reflected the party's intention, it no longer reflects that original intention and has not done so since major unforeseen changes occurred in the electricity market. This unexpected change in circumstances that disrupted the contractual equilibrium is central to CFL Co.'s argument, no matter what form it takes. Yet a change in circumstances that disrupts the contractual equilibrium is precisely what would justify requiring the renegotiation of a contract if the doctrine of unforeseeability was applied. 85. Be that as it may, CFL Co. claims to have avoided relying on that doctrine submitting that his argument is based instead on the concepts of good faith and equity that govern the performance of contractual obligations in our law. Hydro-Quebec argues that all of these inevitably lead to the same result. Regardless of whether CFL Co. is relying indirectly on the doctrine known as unforeseeability or on the general concepts of good faith and equity, there is no legal basis for its arguments concerning the power contract between the parties. I agree. To assess whether there is a valid legal basis for CFL Co.'s submissions on this point, I will begin by outlining the scope of the civil law doctrine of unforeseeability, its place, if any, in Quebec civil law, and the conditions, if any, under which it applies, before turning to the scope of good faith and equity in relation to the duty to renegotiate the contract and reallocate its benefits that CFL Co. claims. Subsection A. Doctrine of Unforeseeability Paragraph 86. The doctrine of unforeseeability is a private law rule that is recognized in some civil law jurisdictions, and the effect of which is that parties can be required to renegotiate a contract if, as a result of unforeseen events, performance of the obligations stipulated in the contract would be excessively onerous for one of them. This rule has been adopted in the domestic law of several European civilian countries, recently including France. On the face of it, the rule corresponds to a key aspect of CFL Co.'s concerns, as it applies specifically to situations in which changes that are beyond the control of and unforeseen by the contracting parties result in a significant disequilibrium in their respective prestations. This rule thus tempers the principle of the binding force of contracts, where changes in market conditions alter the nature of a contract. 87. The French legislature's choice in 2016 to include the doctrine of unforeseeability in French civil law provides one example of this. The new Article 1195 of the French Civil Code has adopted the rule that flows from the doctrine in the following words. Translation, quote, If a change in circumstances that was unforeseeable at the time of the conclusion of the contract renders performance excessively onerous for a party who had not accepted the risk of such a change, that party may ask the other contracting party to renegotiate the contract. The first party must continue to perform his obligations during renegotiation. In the case of refusal or the failure of renegotiations, the parties may agree to terminate the contract from the date and on the conditions which they determined, or by common agreement, ask the court to set about its adaptation. In the absence of an agreement within a reasonable time, the court may, on request of a party, revise the contract or put an end to it, from a date and subject to such conditions as it shall determine. End quote. 88. The doctrine of unforeseeability is also included in Unidois Principles of International Commercial Contracts, 4th edition, 2016, a set of contract law rules 
published by the International Institute for the Unification of Private Law, C. E. Charpentier, L'Emergence d'un Ordre Public, Privé, Une Présentation des Principes d'Unidois, in Les Journées Maximilien Caron, 2001, Les Principes d'Unidois et Les Contrats Internationaux, Aspect Pratique, 2003. The Unidois Principles, which were developed by jurists from a number of countries for the purpose of creating a truly international body of law, are not binding. However, their drafters invite parties to a contract to designate these principles as the rules that will govern their agreement, and hope that they will influence national lawmakers in their legislative choices. See P. A. Crepeau with E. M. Charpentier. The Unidois Principles and the Civil Code of Quebec. Shared Values, 1998. See also Charpentier. Article 6.2.1 of the Unidois Principles states the principle that contracts are binding absent an unforeseeable event. In it, the concept of unforeseeability is referred to using the word hardship, which is defined as follows in Article 6.2.2. Quote, there is hardship where the occurrence of events fundamentally alters the equilibrium of the contract, either because the cost of a party's performance has increased or because the value of performance a party receives has diminished. And a. The events occur or become known to the disadvantaged party after the conclusion of the contract. b. The events could not reasonably have been taken into account by the disadvantaged party at the time of the conclusion of the contract c. The events are beyond the control of the disadvantaged party, and d. The risk of the events was not assumed by the disadvantaged party. 89. As is clear from the words of these provisions, this rule is subject to two core conditions in particular. First, unforeseeability cannot be relied upon where it is clear that the party who was disadvantaged by the change in circumstances had accepted the risk that such changes would occur. Second, it applies only where the new situation makes a contract less beneficial for one of the parties and not simply more beneficial for the other. It does not apply where the parties receive the prestations and benefits that are provided for or are allocated to them in the contract. 90. The Court of Appeal relied in its reasons on the Unidois principles to find that there are only two situations in which the hardship test can be met. Either, quote, the cost of performance rises, but the consideration received remains the same, end quote, or, quote, the cost of performance remains unchanged, but the consideration received is of lesser value, end quote. The idea that unforeseeability might be relied upon to redress a disequilibrium that harms no one, but seems to unduly benefit one party, is in fact sufficiently foreign to this doctrine for Professor Jutra to refer to it as, translation, quote, positive unforeseeability, end quote. D. Jutra, la bonne foi, l'imprévision et le rapport entre le général et le particulier. In obligation et contrat spéciaux, obligation en général, 2017. By H. Barbier. In his view, even Article 1195 of the French Code Civil, given its wording, could not in itself justify ordering the renegotiation of a contract in such a situation. 91. Furthermore, under the French Code Civil, 
for example, the performance of a contract must become not merely less beneficial, but, translation, quote, excessively onerous, end quote. The term hardship, favored by the drafters of the unidroit principle, clearly illustrates the nature of this relationship. Quebec authors who have written on this topic have had no hesitation in referring to a requirement of, translation, quote, true financial peril, end quote. See M.A. Grégoire, Liberté, Responsibilité et Utilité, La Bonne Foi comme Instrument de Justice, 2010. See also Roland, 1999. Baudouin, Jobin et Vezina are of the view that if the courts had the power to intervene in cases of unforeseeability, they should do so only to, quote, avert the ruin of a party, end quote. 92. In the instant case, however, the evocation of this doctrine comes up against obstacles that are fatal to CFL Co.'s argument. First, and fundamentally, the doctrine of unforeseeability is not recognized in Quebec civil law at this time. Second, even in jurisdictions where the doctrine is recognized, it applies only in narrow circumstances that quite simply do not correspond to those of CFL Co. Subpart B. Unforeseeability in Quebec Civil Law. Paragraph 93. In Quebec, the commentators are unanimous. Quebec Civil Law does not recognize the general doctrine of unforeseeability. See Boudouin, Jobin, et Vezina. See also Lul and Moore. See also Pinot, Berman, and Godet. See also V. Karim, Les Obligations. 4th edition, 2015, volume 1. See also M. Tinselin, Des obligations en droit mix du Québec, 7th edition, 2009. The reason for this is simple. The legislature made a conscious choice not to include it in our law. The code contains no article providing for such a rule, nor was there any provision to that effect in the Civil Code of Lower Canada, the predecessor of the code. 94. As the Court of Appeal noted, the Civil Code Revision Office had initially suggested in its draft of the new code that judges be given the power to review contracts for unforeseeability. See Civil Code Revision Office, Report on the Quebec Civil Code, Draft Civil Code, Volume 1, and Commentaries, Volume 2. The proposed new article would have changed the law as the courts at the time had not developed this doctrine and the absence of legislation providing for it. See Lules and Moore. The Civil Code Revision Office explained that the draft article on unforeseeability and two others on lesion would in combination protect any party to a contract in the name of justice and equity. See Commentaries, Volume 2. However, the suggestion of the Civil Code Revision Office was not accepted. See Crepeau et Charpentier. It was explained in the National Assembly, shortly before the enactment of the new code, the provisions of Book 5 that were included in the final draft were intended translation to achieve a better balance between the parties of contractual relationships by promoting greater fairness, but also by preserving the stability of such relationships, end quote. From La Reforme du Code Civil, Quelques éléments du projet de loi, 125 présents, à l'Assemblée nationale de 18 décembre 1990. 1991. 
The articles on unforeseeability and lesion that were originally contemplated were no doubt incompatible with the concern to preserve contractual stability, especially given that, in addition, the new code assigned a sensitive and essential role to the concepts of good faith and equity, including in contractual matters. 96. As a result, the code contains no rule on unforeseeability as that concept is understood and recognized in civil law jurisdictions elsewhere in the world. That being the case, the Quebec courts have been reluctant to develop their own law on unforeseeability. This is explained by, among other things, the political and social nature of the considerations underlying the choice to incorporate into the general law a rule that requires the renegotiation of a contract following an unforeseeable event. 97. In this regard, I note that in a report on the general reform of the civil law of contracts, the French Ministry of Justice notes that the doctrine of unforeseeability was adopted to address social policy considerations. See Rapport au Président de la République relative à l'ordonnance numéro 2016-131 du 10 février 2016. Portant réforme du droit des contrats, du régime général et de la preuve des obligations. February 11th, 2016, online, chapter 4, section 1, subsection 1. Moreover, several of the European countries that have adopted the doctrine of unforeseeability have done so in response to major political or economic crises. See J.M. Pirello force majeure and hardship under the unitois principles of international commercial contracts, 1997. See also S. Litvinov, force majeure, failure of cause and theory de l'imprévision, Louisiana Law and Beyond, 1985, Louisiana Law Review. Thus it can be seen that a decision to subordinate one or more contractual relationships to the doctrine of unforeseeability usually depends on the express will of the parties who choose to be governed by, for example, the unitois principles, or on the will of national governments or legislatures that require it. 98. I would add that the concepts, good faith and equity, favored by the legislature favored by the Quebec legislature to ensure contractual fairness are not compatible with a rule that would depend on external circumstances rather than on the contract and the situation of the parties. 99. In any event, there is another obstacle that makes any approach suggested by CFL Co. in reliance on the doctrine of unforeseeability clearly inapplicable to the case at bar. Despite what CFL Co. says, the strict conditions for application of the doctrine are not met in this case. As the Court of Appeal found, not only did the trial judge make no palpable or an overriding error with respect to the fact that the parties had intentionally allocated to Hydro-Quebec the risk of electrical price fluctuations, however large they might be, but hardship, as understood in all the recognized forms of the doctrine of unforeseeability, has simply not been established in this case. 100. It should be noted that the disruptive event relied upon by CFL Co., did not have the effect of increasing the cost of performing its prestations or diminishing the value of the prestations it received from Hydro-Quebec. On the contrary, at the risk of repeating myself, CFL Co. has continued to receive exactly what is owed under the contract, as well as the related benefits, of course.
Those benefits continue for the future, including, it must be remembered, the no less substantial ones that will fall to CFL Co. at the end of the contract. As the Court of Appeal put it, quote, not only is CFL Co. viable and prosperous, but at a future fixed date, its obligations to Hydro-Quebec will end, and it alone will have full control over the very valuable power plant endowed with considerable potential, end quote. 101. As a result, CFL Co.'s arguments regarding the duties Hydro-Quebec nonetheless has, in its opinion, in respect of good faith and equity, are of no assistance to it in this case. Subsection C. Good Faith and Equity. Paragraph 102. The result of the choices made by the legislature in the course of the revisions is that under the law of contracts in Quebec civil law, restrictions on consensualism generally take the form of exceptions and specific rules. See du Lewis, La Révision du Contrat en droit québécois, 2006. See also P.G. Jobin, L'Equity en droit des contrats, in P.C. Lafonde, Mélange Claude Mess, Enquête de justice et d'équité, 2003. See also L. Roland, La bonne foi dans le Code civil du Québec, du général au particulier, 1996. The binding force of contracts, which is provided for in Article 1434 of the Civil Code of Quebec, is the rule. The exceptions relate, for example, to the status of a minor or a protected person of full age, which makes it possible to raise lesion, or to the particular nature of consumer contracts or contracts of adhesion, which justifies the nullity of certain clauses. 103. The general duty of good faith also serves as a basis for courts to intervene and to impose on contracting parties obligations based on a notion of contractual fairness. But while good faith can temper formalistic interpretations of the words of certain contracts, it also serves to maximize the meaningful effect of a contract and the prestations that are for the parties the object of the contract. 104. Good faith confers a broad, flexible power to create law. See Grégoire, see also Rollin, 1996. The concept of good faith has been codified since 1994 in Articles 6 and 7 of the Civil Code of Quebec. These articles and their location in the Code suggest that the Court should infuse this concept into the whole of Quebec civil law. The commentary of the Minister of Justice on Article 1375 of the Civil Code of Quebec leaves no doubt as to its potential scope and its capacity to change the civil law over time. Translation, quote, The legal equivalent of the moral concept of goodwill, and closely related to the application of equity, good faith is a concept that serves to connect legal principles with fundamental concepts of fairness, end quote. From Ministère de la Justice, Commentaire du Ministre de la Justice, Volume 1, Le Code Civil du Québec, Un Mouvement de Société, 1993. Understood in this way, good faith is more than a series of distinct obligations. It is instead a broad principle that should be applied flexibly, having regard to the particular circumstances of each case. See Baudouin, Jobin, and Vizina. See also Grégoire. 105. It is on good faith that CFL Co. would like to draw as the basis for the right it claims, that is, a right to impose the renegotiation of the contract and a reallocation of the benefits that flow from it. 
following an approach that would be similar to that of the doctrine of unforeseeability, but would extend its limits. In support of its argument, CFL Co. cites certain authors who urged the courts to develop rules on unforeseeability that would be based on good faith and would be similar to what was considered by the Court of Appeal in this case. See, for example, P.G. Jobin, L'imprévision dans les réformes du Code civil et aujourd'hui, in B. Moore, Mélange Jean-Louis Baudouin, 2012. See also Baudouin, Jobin et Vezina. See also Karim, 2015. See also Grégoire. See also Tancelin. See also S. Martin. Pour une réception de la théorie de l'imprévision en droit positif québécois, 1993. It may be tempting to do this, but any development of concepts analogous to unforeseeability in Quebec civil law must take account of the legislature's choice not to turn this doctrine into a universal rule. 106. Moreover, it does not seem to make sense that when all is said and done, CFL Co. is seeking to use the concepts of good faith and equity in a manner that actually goes beyond the limits of the doctrine of unforeseeability, even though the Quebec legislature has refused to incorporate that doctrine into the province's civil law. If unforeseeability itself has been rejected, a protection analogous to it that would be linked only to changes in circumstances without regard for the core conditions of the doctrine as recognized in other civil law jurisdictions could not become a rule in Quebec law. The Court of Appeal found that the principles underlying good faith, or even equity, cannot be extended that far. I agree. 107. As Hydro-Quebec points out, because good faith serves to protect the equilibrium of a contract, it cannot be used to violate that equilibrium and impose a new bargain on the parties. Moreover, because good faith is not synonymous with either charity or distributive justice, the courts cannot rely on it to order the sharing of profits that have in fact been honestly earned. Superior Court accepted Hydro-Quebec's first argument and ruled in its favor at trial. The Court of Appeal also ruled in its favor, but preferred the logic of its second argument. 108. CFL Co. submits that the Court of Appeal erred in treating good faith as a mere collection of specific duties, thereby limiting its scope and its potential. What I understand from this is that, in CFL Co.'s view, the Court of Appeal should instead have taken the opportunity to ground a duty to renegotiate following an unforeseeable event in the duty of equity the legislature has, by way of Article 1434 of the Civil Code of Quebec, introduced into all contracts to which Quebec law applies. 109. I will begin by rejecting the latter argument. Equity cannot be relied on in these circumstances, as its effect would be to indirectly introduce either lesion or unforeseeability into the law of every case. As Boutouin, Jobin, et Vezina note, Article 1434 of the Civil Code of Quebec clearly gives judges considerable latitude. Translation, quote, What the judge must do is, in essence, to determine whether, in the circumstances of the case, and in the absence of an express rule established by law or by the agreement, a duty should be imposed on the party in light of the spirit of the law or the scheme of the agreement, as well as a shared sense of fairness, that is to say, equity. Playing a creative role, the judge then becomes an instrument of equity. 
although this does not authorize him or her to disregard an intention that has been clearly expressed by the parties, end quote. But while it is true that Article 1434 of the Civil Code of Quebec can occasionally serve as a basis for the courts to intervene in order to remedy unfair situations, see Duncan Brands, see also Llewellyn and Moore, nothing about the relationship between CFL Co. and Hydro-Quebec would justify such an intervention in the circumstances of the case at bar. There is neither inequality nor vulnerability in their relationship. Both parties to the contract were experienced, and they negotiated its clauses at length. They bound themselves knowing full well what they were doing, and their conduct shows that they intended one of them to bear the risk of fluctuations in electricity prices. To rely on equity in this context is essentially to argue that fairness requires a principle in Quebec law to the effect that a change in the circumstances of the parties to a contract will always justify it being renegotiated, which would conflict sharply with the legislature's intent. In Quebec civil law, equity is not so malleable that it can be detached from the will of the parties and their common intention as revealed in and established by a thorough analysis of the whole of the relevant evidence. 110. Therefore, if a protection analogous to that of the doctrine of unforeseeability can emerge in this case, it is limited to what is authorized by good faith. On this point, I agree with the Court of Appeal. It cannot be argued that a party to a contract who refuses to make major changes to the contract where there is no hardship within the meaning of the unit dual principles, or where no objectively, or where no objectively reasonable solution is available to the party, is by refusing to do so breaching the general duty to exercise his or her rights in good faith. The unforeseen change in the circumstances and the disadvantage suffered by the contracting party who requests that the contract be renegotiated do not in themselves justify a court requiring the requested renegotiation. The concept of good faith has its own boundaries and its own logic, and its scope cannot be expanded to include the possibility of penalizing a party whose conduct has not been unreasonable or a duty to renegotiate the principal obligations of a contract in all circumstances. 111. The fundamental role played by good faith in Quebec civil law is now well established. This court recognized the importance of good faith in National Bank of Canada, Canadian National Bank, and Sousis, 1981 Supreme Court of Canada decision. Over time, it defined the scope of the concept in specific contexts. See Bank of Montreal and Coot Leung Ng, 1989 Supreme Court of Canada decision, Houle and Canadian National Bank, 1990 Supreme Court decision, Bank of Canada and Bell Limited, 1992 Supreme Court of Canada decision. The Quebec legislature codified the principles of good faith in 1994 using language that is flexible, broad, and conducive to evolution. 112. In the context of Book 5 of the Code, in Article 1375, good faith takes the form of an objective standard of conduct. Quote, the parties shall conduct themselves in good faith, both at the time the obligation arises and at the time it is performed or extinguished. End quote. As Lewell and Moore note, good faith gives rise to a requirement of translation, quote, ethical conduct in the performance of the contract, end quote, of a general attitude or even of a, quote, state of being, end quote. The codified concept is similar to the one that was developed by this court, to the effect that good faith is an obligation that requires parties to exercise their contractual rights 
in accordance with the rules of fair play and equity. See Hull. Baudouin, Jobin, and Vizina write that translation, good faith has become the behavioral ethic required in contractual matters, end quote. The form this standard takes, therefore necessarily depends on the clauses and the nature of the contract at issue. 113. But because good faith is a standard associated with the party's conduct, it cannot be used to impose obligations that are completely unrelated to their conduct. What constitutes unreasonable conduct contrary to the duty of good faith must be determined on a case-by-case basis. For example, in a situation of hardship that corresponds to the description of that concept set out in the Unidois Principles, the conduct of the contracting party who benefits from the exchange in the circumstances cannot be disregarded and must be assessed. 114. CFL Co. argues that, by failing to cooperate with it to help it overcome its financial problems and enable it to benefit from the Churchill Falls project, Hydro-Quebec is acting contrary to the requirements of good faith. What this means in real terms is that Hydro-Quebec would have to confer with CFL Co. in order to come to some arrangement or compromise with respect to the words of the contract and would also have to ensure that the legitimate expectation raised by CFL Co., that is, that the other contracting party will help it benefit fully from the positive effects of the project is met. 115. The authors recognize the existence of a duty to cooperate that flows from the requirements of good faith. This duty is sometimes described as a positive obligation that requires a party to be proactive in accommodating the interests and legitimate expectations of his or her contracting party, as opposed to the negative obligations imposed by the duty of good faith which require a party to refrain from doing certain things that would harm the other party. See Luell and Moore at numbers 1,979 and 1,999-2000. to See also Baudouin, Jobin, et Vizina. The duty to cooperate means, for example, that one party must look out for the other party's interests by acting in a reasonably conciliatory and proactive manner when receiving and performing prestations under the contract. 116. That being said, a review of the case law shows that this duty to cooperate has only quite rarely led a court to find that an obligation to amend a contract applied, and that no court has yet found that the obligation to redistribute profits earned under a contract did. Although CFL Co. can argue that for a party to consider only the words of a contract without taking the other party's situation into account can become wrongful conduct, It is wrong to rely on this argument that a refusal to renegotiate a contract or share profits is contrary to the duty of good faith. One does not necessarily entail the other. 117. This conclusion follows from two fundamental principles of Quebec civil law that cannot be disregarded in any analysis of good faith in the circumstances of a given case. The first is that good faith is presumed, and a party must, in meeting the requirements of good faith, also be able to satisfy his or her own interests. As this court pointed out in Basson, quote, while appropriate regard for the other party's interests will vary depending on the context of the contractual relationship, it does not require acting to serve those interests in all cases, end quote. This statement equally applies to the duty of good faith in Quebec civil law. 118. Thus, the duty of good faith does not negate a party's right to rely on the words of the contract unless insistence on that right is reasonable in the circumstances. 
The examples given by authors involve situations in which, exceptionally, such a stance would threaten the contractual relationship or the harmony of the contract without regard for the contracting partner's legitimate expectations. Those in which it would allow one party to derive an unwarranted advantage from his or her situation. Translation, quote, but this fault presupposes conduct that truly deviates from that of an honest, prudent contracting party, end quote. And finally, those in which the party who insists on adhering to the words of the contract is inflexible or gratuitously impatient or intransigent. See Lewell and Moore. 119. In this case, Hydro-Quebec's refusal to forego the advantages flowing from the contract is not a departure from the standard of reasonable conduct that could rebut the presumption that a party is acting in good faith. Nor does its insistence on adhering to the contract, despite the alleged unforeseen change in circumstances, constitute unreasonable conduct in the absence of other breaches in the duty of fair play or that of collaboration and cooperation. This position taken by Hydro-Quebec does not show any intransigence or impatience on its part. Hydro-Quebec is not deviating from the standard of a reasonable contracting party, and it is considering CFL Co.'s legitimate contractual interests, given that it is not preventing CFL Co. from receiving the benefits conferred on the latter under the contract. 120. The second fundamental principle is that, translation, quote, good faith requires consideration of the spirit of the law or the agreement, end quote, from Boudouin, Jobin, et Vizina. The purpose of the duty to cooperate is thus to give the contract, as it exists, the broadest possible scope. See Lebrun. In a sense, this duty can be seen as a simple implementation of Pothier's maxim that, quote, obligating oneself to do something means obligating oneself to do it effectively, end quote. The many expressions of the duty of good faith, therefore, serve to maintain the relevance of the prestations that form the basis of the contract for the two parties, even if the words of the contract do not specifically prohibit the parties from doing something that would impede its fulfillment. Because good faith takes its form from the terms of the contract, it cannot serve to undermine the contract's paradigm. But in the view of the Superior Court and the Court of Appeal, that is exactly what CFL Co. is arguing for in this case. CFL Co. is demanding that Hydro-Quebec renounce its access to a source of electricity production at a stable cost, that is, to the principal benefit it derives from the contract. 121. It is true that the Quebec courts have sometimes required contracting parties to make slight changes to their contracts. For example, they have required a party to tolerate certain breaches by the other party or to refrain from asserting rights in certain circumstances. See Provisano and Baburi, 1991 Quebec Court of Appeal. See also TL and YL, 2001 QCCA 1205. See also SMC Pneumatics Canada Limited and DISCA Inc., 2000 Superior Court decision from Quebec. Reversed on appeal, but not on this point, in a 2003 Court of Appeal decision. As well, they have sometimes imposed what are known as duties of conciliation, by requiring one party to help the other find solutions for the other party's problems, or to accept a new offer that essentially satisfies his or her own needs, provided in all cases that the circumstances show that it would be unreasonable not to do so. See Entreprise MTY Tiki Ming Inc. and McDuff, 2008 QCCS 4898. See also Negaraja and Fotinopoulos, Calibus. 
2003 Superior Court decision. See also Lebrun. But no court has ever forced the party to renegotiate the prestations on which the commutative nature of the contract was based. In my view, this is justified by the very logic found in the duty of good faith. If the main prestations of a contract are renegotiated and modified, they will rarely remain relevant. 122. C.F.L. Co. nonetheless argues that in certain circumstances, renegotiation will serve to maintain a contract's relevance. In support of this argument, it cites Provigo Distribution Inc. and Supermarché ARG Inc. 1997 Court of Appeal decision, in which the Court of Appeal held that a franchisor had breached its duty of fair play by failing to provide its franchisees with tools they needed in order to prevent or at least minimize economic losses. However, the circumstances in Provigo are very different. The franchisor had taken the initiative of changing the marketing structure for its products. This was not contrary to its contracts with its franchisees, but was detrimental to their interests. The Court of Appeal found that Provigo, therefore, had a duty to cooperate with its franchisees in order to help them maintain the contract's relevance, which was jeopardized by the changes. One of the options suggested to the court, which stated, however, that it was not for it translation, quote, to say what a prudent and diligent franchisor acting in good faith could or should have done, end quote, was to amend the franchise contracts. Thus, the reason why Provigo had to cooperate to such an extent with its contracting partners was that its duty of fair play required it to avoid disrupting the contractual equilibrium when it made other business decisions that might directly affect that equilibrium. In other words, Provigo is fundamentally different from the instant case. Given that the franchisor's fault in that case lay in its choice to act without minimizing the impact of its otherwise legitimate actions on the contracting parties. 123. In the case at bar, Hydro-Quebec has done nothing that threatens to disrupt the contractual equilibrium. It therefore has no duty to cooperate with CFL Co. to mitigate the effects of the contract. Moreover, the circumstances CFL Co. relies on are, according to its argument, external to the parties, so much so that they were unforeseeable. I would add that the franchise contract at issue in Provigo was a relational contract. Given the trial judge's findings of fact on this point, CFL Co. cannot maintain that its contract with Hydro-Quebec can be so characterized. In any event, while there have been cases, although limited in scope and, what is more, quite rare, in which an exceptional duty to make slight changes to a contract have been held to exist, no court has, ex no court has endorsed the existence of a duty to share previously allocated profits in the name of good faith or fair play. Yet that is, in essence, what CFL Co. is seeking. 124. It follows that neither good faith nor equity give CFL Co. a legal basis for requiring that the initial equilibrium of the power contract be modified. The evidence does not show that Hydro-Quebec is acting in bad faith or refusing to accommodate CFL Co.'s situation. It is refusing only to give the other party the benefits of it itself derives from the contract, which is not a breach of the requirement that it conduct itself reasonably and in accordance with fair play. Hydro-Quebec does indeed benefit from the contract insofar as it is able to earn a profit as a result of its having participated in this project rather than undertaking similar... Hydro-Quebec does indeed 
benefit from the contract, insofar as it is able to earn a profit as a result of its having participated in this project rather than undertaking a similar project in Quebec in the 1960s. But it obtained in exchange for making substantial investments and assuming significant risks the full right of enjoyment of the benefits of the plant and of the plant's capacity to produce electricity at a stable price over a long period of time, regardless of any fluctuations in market prices. As for CFL Co., it has, as the courts below noted, received what it expected to receive under the power contract, namely, the ability to use debt financing for the plant and a return on its investment that it considered reasonable at the time of signing the contract. 125. As helpful and fundamental as the concepts of good faith and equity are in protecting the contractual equilibrium in Quebec, it would be inappropriate to apply them, as CFL Co. asks us to do, to transform the objectives of corrective justice they are intended to protect into a mechanism of distributive justice that would be unpredictable and contrary to contractual stability. Subpart 3. Conclusions on the Principal Question. Paragraph 126. CFL Co.'s arguments on the principal question in the appeal, both those based on the facts and those based on the law, must fail. 127. First, the trial judge correctly defined the party's intention and the nature of the power contract. The parties entered into a contract that allocates the risks and benefits associated with the project between them. Regardless of whether the 1960s market context is considered, this suffices for us to reject CFL Co.'s argument that the objective of this contract is instead the equitable sharing of risks and profits of the undertaking, or the creation of a relationship of long-term cooperation and economic coordination. What is more, the contract expressly allocated the risk related to the electricity price fluctuations, whatever their source might be, to Hydro-Quebec. 128. Second, CFL Co.'s arguments to the effect that a duty to renegotiate the contract can be found in provisions of the code must fail in the circumstances. CFL Co. cannot rely on the doctrine of unforeseeability since the doctrine is not part of Quebec civil law and has not been established that CFL Co. was actually in a situation of hardship at any point during the life of the contract. The evidence in the record and the trial judge's inferences of fact do not establish this. Moreover, the renegotiation of the contract is not justified on the basis of either equity or good faith. The duty to cooperate with the other contracting party does not mean that one's interests must be sacrificed. Given that Hydro-Quebec is not being unreasonable and in insisting on adhering to the words of the power contract, the fact that it is limiting itself to complying with the contract does not give rise to any rights for CFL Co. In the instant case, there is no justification for requiring the contract be modified. Subsection B. Relief Sought and Prescription. Paragraph 129. Since the central question in the appeal must be answered in the negative, I will only deal briefly with the subsidiary questions. 130. In this court, CFL Co. insists that the appropriate relief would, first and foremost, be in order that Hydro-Quebec comply with the 2009 demand notice in which CFL Co. called upon it to renegotiate the power contract. Yet the principal conclusion CFL Co. sought in its motion to institute proceedings was an order modifying the contract by incorporating a formula for adjusting the prices payable that CFL Co. had itself devised. According to CFL Co., if this court has the power to order the parties to renegotiate the contract, it must also have the power to set the terms of the new contract itself. 
131. The Court of Appeal did not deal with this question, whereas the trial judge had focused on the shortcomings of the price adjustment formula CFL Co. was asking it to add to the contract. Because CFL Co. has not identified any palpable and overriding error in the trial judge's analysis on this point, there is no basis for intervening in this regard. Moreover, I am unable to identify a legal principle on the basis of which a judge could impose a new bargain on Hydro-Quebec to which it has not agreed. As Hydro-Quebec points out, allowing a contract to be modified by a judge at the request of a single party would conflict seriously with the principles of the binding force of contracts and the freedom to contract that underlie Quebec civil law. I would add that Professor Jobin opposes this solution even though he is in favor of introducing the doctrine of unforeseeability into Quebec civil law. Translation, quote, A court cannot have the power to redraft the agreement, to itself adapt the agreement to the circumstances. As an outsider to the negotiations and to the specific context of the parties, it could well impose inappropriate terms if it were to modify the agreement itself, end quote. 132. As for CFL Co.'s request for an order to renegotiate the contract, in my view it reflects a misunderstanding of the scope of the legal principles on which CFL Co. relies, the requirements of which it does not meet. The unprecedented remedy my colleague proposes is along the same lines, requiring that the contract be renegotiated such that the parties agree on a price adjustment formula for allocating the unforeseen profits or, failing an agreement in this regard, authorizing the court to establish such a formula and impose it. In my opinion, no support for such a remedy can be found in either the academic literature or the case law on Quebec civil law. 133. Furthermore, I agree with the trial judge that, in any event, CFL Co.'s action is prescribed. By virtue of its argument, CFL Co. is seeking specific performance of an implied conditional obligation to renegotiate the contract in the event of a sudden change in market conditions. See Articles 1497 and 1601 of the Civil Code of Quebec. The breach it alleges is thus the non-performance of a contractual prestation that is exigible from the occurrence of a specific event. See Article 1507 of the Civil Code of Quebec. It follows that the right of action that, in CFL Co.'s view, allows it to compel performance of the obligation or to obtain damages for the injury caused by the non-performance arose at the latest when it became aware of the obligation that had not been performed, even though the specified condition had been fulfilled. 134. What can be seen from the evidence is that the most recent event to have disrupted the market on which CFL Co. relies, namely the action taken by the United States Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to effectively require that the market be open to all producers, occurred in 1997 at the latest. It was therefore at that time that CFL Co.'s right of action arose within the meaning of Article 2880, Paragraph 2 of the Civil Code of Quebec. As a trial judge correctly found, prescription began to run on the day that CFL Co. learned of that change in circumstances in the electricity market. Because an action to enforce a personal contractual right is prescribed by three years, CFL Co.'s right of action has been prescribed since the end of 2000 at the latest. See Article 2925 of the Civil Code of Quebec. The demand notice it sent in 2009 and the institution of an action in this case in February 2010 were clearly late. 135. 
CFL Co.'s argument that Hydro-Quebec's breach of its duty of good faith is a continuing fault that is, in practice, not subject to prescription must fail. It is true that the authors acknowledge that a fault can be committed repeatedly and that each new fault then leads to a new injury. See J. L. Boudouin, P. de Laurier, and B. Moore, La Responsabilité Civile, 8th edition, 2014. See also J. McCann, Prescription Extentive et Fin du Non Recevoir, 2011. In such cases, there is said to be continuing fault or damage. Examples that are cited include the faults committed by a polluter or by a person who harasses another. In Duncan Brands, the Court of Appeal also found that a breach of an ongoing duty of assistance provided for in a contract was a continuing fault. However, the situation in the case at bar is entirely different. CFL Co. seeks a sanction for the breach of a duty to renegotiate that, it alleges, flowed from discrete external events that had disrupted the contractual equilibrium. In such a case, the right of action in question arises when the events that give rise to it occur, that is, when they crystallize. Part 6, Conclusion, Paragraph 136 In the final analysis, CFL Co. has not provided any compelling factual or legal basis for the courts to reshape the contractual relationship it has had with Hydro-Quebec for the last 50 years. The trial judge properly defined the nature of this relationship and the paradigm of the contract, and also explained why Hydro-Quebec is not breaching its duty of good faith in exercising its right to purchase electricity from CFL Co. at fixed prices. The parties never intended to allocate the project's risks and benefits equally. On the contrary, the original intention was that Hydro-Quebec would assume most of the risks associated with the construction of the plant owned by another company. At the time the contract was entered into, the benefit that CFL Co. now characterizes as disproportionate, namely the guarantee of fixed prices for the purchase of electricity, was seen as a way to have Hydro-Quebec assume a risk that CFL Co. did not want to assume. In return, Hydro-Quebec was to obtain low, fixed prices and a long-term contract, two benefits on which it insisted in 1969 in exchange for increasing its contribution to the project. It is true that it now, in good faith, earns substantial profits as a result. However, the magnitude of those profits does not justify modifying the contract so as to deny it that benefit. 137. The fact that the electricity market has changed significantly since the parties entered into the contract does not on its own justify disregarding the terms of the contract and its nature. While it is true that the introduction of the duty of good faith into the code shows that the legislature intended to temper the principles of the binding force of contracts and autonomy of the will, this does not justify making inordinate use of that duty in order to override the terms of an agreement that adequately reflects the initial equilibrium envisioned by the parties. In reality, CFL Co. is not asking the court to help it give the contract the broadest possible scope. Rather, it is asking the court to limit the contract's temporal scope so that it can more quickly enjoy the benefits it will eventually receive at the end of the contract in 2041. Those benefits, which will in fact fall to CFL Co. as a result of the paradigm of the contract, are substantial for it as well. A plant estimated to be worth more than $20 billion that will be able to operate for its own benefit starting in September 2041, for another 118 years until its lease expires. 138. When all is said and done, CFL Co. is seeking not to protect the equilibrium of the power contract, but to replace the contract with a new agreement 
by undoing certain aspects of the contract while keeping the ones that suit it. CFLCO is thus seeking for more than accommodations or compromise. It is asking its contracting partner to give up the benefits it obtained in exchange for the sacrifices it made during the first few years of the project, a situation from which CFLCO has been benefiting since 1969 and continues to benefit today. Neither good faith nor equity justifies granting these requests. 139. I would dismiss the appeal with costs. The following are the reasons delivered by Justice Rowe. Part 1. Introduction. Paragraph 140. My reasons in this appeal and those of my colleague, Justice Gascon, present contrasting visions of how the jurisprudence regarding contract characterization has developed under Quebec law. My conclusion on the question of characterization leads me to a result different from that reached by Justice Gascon. I would allow the appeal. 141. The appellant, the Churchill Falls Labrador Corporation, CFL Co., claims that it is entitled to participate in profits that is contract with the respondent, Hydro-Quebec, which sets out a framework for harnessing the hydroelectric potential of the Churchill River Basin in Labrador, does not meaningfully allocate. This entitlement, the appellant argues, flows from the relational nature of the contract and the heightened duty of good faith this imposes on the respondent. This argument focuses on the failure of the trial judge to properly characterize the contract and his failure to recognize the important legal consequences that follow from its proper characterization. 142. The main issue in this appeal is therefore whether the trial judge erred in his characterization of the contract binding CFL Co. and Hydro-Quebec. I would answer this question in the affirmative, given the failure of the trial judge to characterize the contract as relational rather than transactional. The power contract establishes a long-term relationship between the parties, premised on cooperation and the promise of mutual benefit. Rather than define the parties' obligations in rigid detail, it assumes that the parties would work together to fulfill the aims of their contractual relationship. Properly characterized, it is the epitome of the relational contract. 143. A number of conclusions follow from this correct characterization. The first is that, given the nature of their contractual relationship, both parties have implied obligations and are subject to a heightened duty of good faith and cooperation. This duty flows from the operation of Articles 6, 7, and 1,375, as well as Article 1,434 of the Civil Code of Quebec. The second is that the contractual relationship between the parties includes an implied obligation to reach an agreement about the allocation of unforeseeable and extraordinary profits arising from the operation of the power contract. This in turn leads to the conclusion that Hydro-Quebec, by unreasonably withholding its agreement to negotiate with CFL Co. about the allocation of these profits, has been a continuous breach of its obligation. The appellant's claim against Hydro-Quebec consequently cannot be prescribed by the operation of Article 2925 of the Civil Code of Quebec. Part 2 Analysis Paragraph 144 My analysis is premised on an approach to contract characterization that differs from that adopted by my colleague. Whereas Justice Gascon states that contract characterization is a question of mixed fact and law to be reviewed on the standard of overriding and palpable error, my view is that characterization in this case is a question of law reviewable on the standard of correctness. Given the errors committed by the trial judge in carrying out his characterization, this court must conclude the analysis anew. 145. In what follows, I set out my reasons for concluding that, properly characterized, 
The power contract binding the parties is relational in nature. Parties to a relational contract are typically presumed to have bound themselves to a higher standard of good faith. This allows the parties to rely on a heightened duty of cooperation in fulfilling the goals of their contractual relationship. As the power contract contains no mechanism for the allocation of profits that are beyond what was envisioned at the time of the agreement, the parties have an implied obligation to cooperate in defining the terms of their allocation. Hydro-Quebec has breached this duty by refusing to establish by way of mutual agreement a price adjustment formula for these extraordinary profits. Subpart A. The Proper Approach to Contract Characterization Paragraph 146 the object of contract characterization is to link the contract at issue to a legal category so as to impose on the parties the legal effects of the true nature of their agreement. See D. Lewis and B. Moore, Droit des Obligations, 2nd edition, 2012. See also J. Gestien, C. Jamin, and M. Bilot. Les effets du contrat, 3rd edition, 2001. See also F. Gendron, L'Interpretation des Contrats, 2nd edition, 2016. In characterizing the contract, the judge must be attentive to all the obligations and their interrelations so as to reveal their hierarchical positions. See P. Fréchette, La Qualification des Contrats, Aspect et Théorique, 2010. The aim of this exercise is to identify the essential objective of the contract, its raison d'être, and to categorize the contract based on the elements that define its nature. See P. Dilbeck and F. J. Pensier, Droit des obligations, Contrat et cause et Contrat, 7th edition, 2016. This conclusion must arise from the structured syllogism and not from intuition, instinct, or any individualistic sense of what seems fair in a particular situation. See Fréchette. See also Okela. Ouverture, la qualification ou la vérité du droit, 1993. 147. The unqualified assertion by my colleague that contract characterization is a question of mixed fact and law departs from settled jurisprudence. In Unipri Inc. and Gestion Gosselin et Berube Inc., 2017, SCC 43, a majority of this court drew on the distinction between the interpretation of a contract and the characterization of a contract. On the one hand, contractual interpretation often involves questions of mixed fact and law, notably when courts must consider both the intrinsic and extrinsic context of that contract, including, quote, the factual circumstances in which it was formed, how the parties have interpreted it, and usage, end quote, from Unipri. See also J.L. Boudouin et P.J. Jobin, Les Obligations, 7th edition, 2013. See also V. Caron, Jalon pour une théorie pragmatique de l'interprétation du contrat, du temps de la volonté à la pyramide de sens, 2016. 148. The types of questions raised by the contract characterization, on the other hand, depend on whether it is necessary to consider extrinsic evidence to establish the party's intent as to the fundamental obligation of the contract. On this point, Justice Wagner and Justice Gascon write in Unipri, quote, The characterization of a contract can also be considered to be a question of mixed fact and law in certain circumstances. 
Although certain authors see it as a pure question of law, such as Gentron, Luel, and more, the fact remains that the characterization of a contract can depend on the evidence of the party's common intention as regards its nature and its content. When it is necessary to consider evidence of that intention, the Quebec Court of Appeal rightly recognizes that, in such cases, the characterization of the contract is a question of mixed fact and law. See MMA. See also Blanville-Jonca. See also C. Canadien d'assurance générale Lombard contre Promutuel Portneuf-Champoint, Société Mutuelle d'assurance générale. 2016 QCCA 1903, end quote. 149. I do not dispute that contract characterization becomes a question of mixed fact and law where consideration of evidence extrinsic to the contract is necessary to identify the true intention of the parties. In certain circumstances, the identification of this shared intention will require the judge to look beyond the words of the contract itself. In such cases, the characterization of the contract is no longer an objective exercise because it requires the court to consider subjective intent, subjective indicators of the party's intent, such as those gleaned from the circumstances surrounding the formulation of the contract and its performance. Such was the case in Montreal, Maine, et Atlantique Canada, C. Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic Canada Co., MMA, RE. 2014 QCCA 2072 and Station Mont-Tremblant contre Bonville-Jonca 2017 QCCA 939. In these cases, the Quebec Court of Appeal indicated that while characterization is generally a question of law, it can be a question of mixed fact and law when testimonial evidence is necessary to establish the nature of the contract. In these cases, Testimonial and other extrinsic evidence was considered to determine the party's true intention and the nature of the contract. 150. In cases, quote, where the purpose of characterization is only to define the specific legal scheme of the contract without resorting to any evidence, end quote, the exercise of characterization remains a question of law, see Unipri. This distinction is recognized by a number of authors and decisions. See Gaston, Chamin, et Billot. See also Gendron. See also Luel and Moore. See also S. Gramond, A. F. De Bruche, and Y. Campanolo. Quebec Contract Law, 2nd edition, 2016. See also M. Tinselin, Des Obligations en droit mixte du Québec, 7th edition, 2009. See also Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic Co. See also Station Mont-Tremblant. See also Paquin Charbonneau contre Société de Casino du Québec, 2017, QCCA 1728. 151. In the case at hand, the trial judge, Justice Silkoff, noted that in the absence of ambiguity, the court must direct its attention solely to the power contract in order to identify the true nature and equilibrium of the relationship, the risks and benefits assumed thereunder, and the rights and obligations of the parties. See 2014 QCCS 3590 at paragraph 556. The trial judge did not point to any ambiguity in the provisions of the agreement 
or to any relevant contradictory extrinsic evidence. Rather, he stated that the, quote, power contract is the contractual genesis of the relationship between the parties. It documents and defines, in a clear and concise manner, the nature of the relationship to which the parties agreed to be bound and the scope of their respective rights and obligations thereunder, end quote. As a trial judge did not indicate the necessity of considering elements extrinsic to the contract to establish the nature of its fundamental obligation, characterization, in this instance, remains a question of law. 152. To be clear, though Justice Silkoff considered extrinsic evidence in qualifying the contract, this was only after having concluded that the power contract, quote, documents and defines, in a clear and concise manner, the nature of the relationship to which the parties agreed to be bound, end quote. I adopt rather than take issue with his finding that one can characterize a contract by reference to its terms when this contract is clear. It is at the next step, the proper characterization of the contract, that he and I differ. 153. The standard of review on a question of law is correctness. See Hausen and Nicolaisen, 2002 SCC 33. See also Station Montremblant. Thus, with respect to the review of a trial judge's findings on the point of law, an appellate court can replace the opinion of the trial judge with its own. Since the trial judge's conclusions regarding the characterization do not warrant deference on appeal, I would correct his findings as to the characterization of the contract. Subpart B. The Relational Nature of the Power Contract. Paragraph 154. The fundamental aim of the power contract its raison d'etre, is the long-term hydroelectric development of the Churchill River for the mutual benefit of the parties. In my view, the power contract creates obligations that go beyond the mere exchange of financing and debt security for guaranteed power at a low price. Rather, it establishes a long-term cooperative relationship whereby both parties expect it to gain. This relationship assumes a high degree of trust and collaboration between the parties. The power contract is, by its nature, a relational contract. 155. In this case, the trial judge erred when he concluded that the clear language and binding force of the power contract, as negotiated between the parties by their own free will, did not support the conclusion that the parties had entered into an agreement of a relational nature. Similarly, the Court of Appeal held that the power contract had no relational element that would justify heightened duties of collaboration. The rationale for this conclusion was that the parties were sophisticated, the negotiations lengthy, the financial implications significant, and the contract complex. See 2016 QCCA 1229 at paragraph 140. 156. My colleague adopts this view of the power contract and concludes that it is not relational in nature, in that it regulates all obligations to the parties with precision. According to Justice Gascon, None of the obligations in the power contract were left undefined. This indicates the party's intention that the project proceed according to the explicit terms of the power contract and not according to their ability and indeed obligation to agree and cooperate to a deal with contractual gaps. This implies that my colleague characterizes the contract as transactional rather than relational. 157. My view is premised on a different understanding of the nature of contractual relationships. On one hand, Transactional contracts, i.e. generally contracts of instantaneous execution, do not create a relationship between the parties in any meaningful sense. They impose precise obligations to be performed at a specific time without the need for further cooperation. See Boutouin, Jobin, 
a Vizina. Relational contracts, on the other hand, typically require successive performance, whereby the parties have obligations to perform on a continuing basis. This presupposes the existence of a deeper relationship based on trust between the parties and requires that each party have an interest in maintaining the relationship for the long term. 158. With respect, I do not share the view that relational contracts should be limited to those that leave certain obligations to be defined by the parties at a later date. Rather than being the necessary condition of relational contracts, undefined obligations are but one indicator of a broader category of relational contracts. Other indicators include the duration of the contract and the creation of an ongoing economic relationship rather than a one-off transaction. See Boutouin, Chauvin, et Vezina. 159. In this case, the power contract establishes a cooperative relationship between the parties for a period of 65 years. Unlike many energy arrangements, the power contract is not limited to a simple contract of sale between an electricity generator and a power purchaser. It is the framework for an interdependent and long-term relationship between the parties. This was acknowledged in the Reference Re Upper Churchill Water Rights Reservation Act, 1984 Supreme Court decision, cited with approval by the trial judge at paragraph 77, where this court noted that, quote, the importance of the relationship between CFL Co. and Hydro-Quebec to the success of the Churchill Falls development is made evident by a reading of the power contract. 160. This conclusion is reinforced by the language of the power contract. First, its terms show that the enduring operation and continued success of the project was of cardinal importance to both parties. To this end, they bound themselves to take an active hand in the arrangement through the course of its operation. Taken as a whole, the arrangement makes clear that both parties saw the project as requiring ongoing interaction and collaboration. This is reflected in the duty of full cooperation included in sections 4.2.1, 4.3, 5.4, 20.3, and 21.1 of the power contract. 161. The language of cooperation appears throughout the power contract. For example, in section 4.2.1, quote, CFL Co. agrees to cooperate fully with Hydro-Quebec in the forecasting of energy which can be made available, end quote. In section 4.3, it is provided that, quote, Hydro-Quebec will cooperate in estimating, to the best of its knowledge, what might be the most suitable time for CFL Co. to take out of service units in order to reduce or eliminate the penalty which CFL Co. might incur for failure to provide firm capacity, end quote. 162. Section 21.1 provides yet another example. In the event that CFL Co. might be unavailable to complete the project, the power contract states that, quote, Hydro-Quebec shall have the right to require CFL Co. to cooperate with Hydro-Quebec with the view of permitting Hydro-Quebec to implement the project on behalf of CFL Co., provided, however, that Hydro-Quebec may not avail itself of such right if CFL Co.'s inability to implement the project, as aforesaid, shall be due to Hydro-Quebec having failed to act with due diligence in the carrying out of its undertaking hereunder, or having unreasonably withheld its consent, agreement, or approval of any request by CFL Co. contemplated by this power contract, end quote. 163. Second, the parties committed to offering each other assistance during the execution of the contract in order to ensure its success. Such a commitment, in my view, is antithetical to the type of arm's-length dealing typical of transactional contracts. 
For example, the parties included an obligation to keep each other mutually informed of any changes in circumstances or of any progress under Section 5.1 of the Power Contract. In certain circumstances, they also provided for equal sharing of benefits, costs, and expenses over the life of the agreement. See, for example, Sections 11.2, 13.3, and 14.1 of the Power Contract. In Section 11.2, for instance, the parties agreed that, quote, all costs and any benefits of any refinancing of any of CFL Co.'s debt obligations, in respect of which Hydro-Quebec had been making an interest charge payments under Article 15, shall be shared equally by the parties hereto, end quote. 164. Third, the parties explicitly contemplated the need for consultation, joint determination, discussion, and revision in a number of instances. See, for example, sections 4.5, 4.6, 6.7, 13.2, and 22.1 of the power contract. In section 4.5, for example, the parties agreed that, quote, should any meter break down or be found not to have required accuracy, CFL Co. and Hydro-Quebec shall determine the amount of power and energy supplied during the period of failure or inaccuracy and the duration of such period, end quote. Except in the case of Appointment of Independent Auditors, Section 13.2, the parties did not provide for an alternative in the event they would fail to agree, which suggested that, in the vast majority of situations, they did not contemplate the possibility that a mutual agreement could not be reached. This reinforces the relational nature of their contract. 165. Ultimately, even if we adopt the narrow view of relational contracts proposed by Justice Gascon, the contracted issue must still be characterized as relational. This is because the parties agreed to define the details of certain obligations relating to the execution of the contract at a later stage in their relationship. For instance, in the interest of overall system compatibility, the parties agreed that, quote, components of the plant which may affect the economy or reliability of Hydro-Quebec's transmission facilities shall have characteristics mutually agreed after consultation, end quote. That's from section 4.1. The parties also agreed that they, quote, shall by mutual agreement establish, revise, and maintain up to date in the light of the experience gained in operating the plant a detailed operating manual, end quote. And that's from section 4.2.8. Envisioning that there may be changes regarding the delivery dates, the parties stipulated that delivery dates may be advanced by mutual agreement. See section 6.3. They also provided that further adjustments to the delivery point may be made by mutual consent, see section 7.1. Regarding the refinancing of CFL Co.'s debt obligations, the parties stipulated that revisions of existing debt obligation agreements shall be made subject to prior approval of both parties, see section 11.1. 166. I add that none of the factors identified by the Court of Appeal, the sophistication of the parties, the length of negotiations, the financial implications, and the complexity of the contract, compromise the characterization of the contract as relational. Emblematic relational contracts, such as joint ventures, partnerships, and franchise agreements, are often complex and they are entered into by sophisticated parties after lengthy negotiations. See J. G. Belly, Théry et Pratique du Contrat Relationnel. Les obligations de collaboration et d'harmonisation normative in Meredith Lectures 1998-1999, The Continued Relevance of the Law of Obligations, Retour aux Sources, 2000. 167. In the end, 
It is only when one considers the overall framework of the party's rights and obligations set out in the terms of the power contract that the true nature of the arrangement becomes apparent. In my view, the true nature of the power contract is relational rather than transactional. I would consequently correct the conclusion of the trial judge on this issue. Subpart C. Implications of Proper Characterization Paragraph 168 The characterization of a contract determines the juridical category into which it falls and the legal consequences that attach to it as a result. See Lules and more. Depending on how it is characterized, a contract may contain certain implied obligations. 169. Article 1434 of the Civil Code of Quebec codifies the source of implied obligations and establishes the binding force of contracts. It states that, quote, a contract validly formed binds the parties who have entered into it not only as to what they have expressed in it, but also as to what is incident to it according to its nature and in conformity with usage, equity, or law, end quote. The nature of the contract informs how to engage with usage, equity, or law, to determine the scope of implied obligations. See J. Penot D. Berman S. Godet, Théorie des Obligations, 4th edition, 2001, by J. Pinot and S. Godet. See also Boudouin, Jobin et Vezina. 170. I share the view expressed by my colleague that an implied obligation is best viewed as a reflection of the presumed intention of the parties to implicitly include certain obligations that are necessary complements to the contract. At paragraph 74, see also Boudouin, Jobin et Vezina, see also Lules and Moore, see also Duncan Brands Canada and Bertico Inc., 2015 QCCA 624. 171. I do not, however, agree that a court must find that the contract would be ambitious, incomprehensible, without foundation, or without useful effect before including an implied obligation. See Lewell and more. Rather, the inclusion of an implied obligation is warranted where a reasonable person, placed in the same particular circumstances, would see an important and intrinsic connection between the implied terms and the nature of the contract. See Boudouin, Jobin, Vizina. See also Pinot, Berman, and Godet. 172. In the present case, the trial judge mischaracterized the power contract and consequently did not appreciate the necessary complements to its explicit terms. For this reason, he failed to identify implied obligations flowing from the relational nature of the power contract. 173. In relational contracts, both good faith, as required by Article 6, 7, and 1375 of the Civil Code of Quebec, and equity provide guidance to defining the scope of the content of the implied obligations. In my analysis of the party's implied duty to cooperate, I consider how both grounds, good faith and equity, inform the scope and content of this obligation. Subsection 1. Good Faith. Paragraph 174. The requirement of good faith is a fundamental and unavoidable part of the civil law of Quebec. Its obligatory force is highlighted by Article 6 of the Civil Code of Quebec, which states that, quote, every person is bound to exercise his civil rights in accordance with the requirements of good faith, end quote. In the context of the law of obligations, the requirement of good faith is reinforced by Article 1375, which states that, quote, the parties shall conduct themselves in good faith, 
both at the time the obligation arises and at the time it is performed or extinguished. End quote. 175. The obligation to act in good faith implies an attitude that maximizes for each party the advantages of the contract. See Lewis and more. See also Bank Toronto Dominion contre Brunel, 2014, QCCA 1584. To uphold their duty of good faith, parties must act in a manner that respects the contractual balance established by their contract. See Lewis and more. 176. The practical requirements of good faith vary in intensity according to the nature of the contractual relationship at issue. In circumstances where the parties must work together to achieve the object of their agreement over a long period of time, the relational nature of the contract imposes a heightened duty of good faith on the parties. See Duncan Brands. See also Boudouin, Jobin, et Vizina. 177. This in turn entails a heightened duty of loyalty and cooperation to fulfill the obligations of the contract, whether they be explicit or implied. The duty of loyalty imposes a negative obligation to abstain from acting in a manner that would be disadvantageous to the other contracting party. The duty to cooperate, by contrast, imposes a positive obligation that requires proactive steps to accommodate the interests and fair expectations of the other contracting party. See Hydro-Quebec and Construction, Qit, 2014, QCCA 197. See also Werner Chapel Music, France, and Boulain. 2015 QCCS 1562. See also Société d'énergie Foster Wheeler Limited contre Ville de Montréal. 2008 QCCS 4670. See also Iconographiti Inc. contre Français Canelli. 2016 QCCS 6242. See also Lule and More. See also L. Rollin. Les figures contemporaines du contre et le Code Civil du Québec, 1999. See also B. Lefebvre. Bonne foi, principe et application. In Jury Classeur Québec. Collection Droit Civil. Obligation et Responsabilité Civil. Volume 1 by P.C. Lafont, Editor. Subsection 2. Equity. Paragraph 178. Courts have used equity as the basis for the obligations of good faith, loyalty, and collaboration in relational contracts. See Pinot, Berman, and Godet. See also Duncan Brands. In my view, equity is broader than good faith, and the duties of loyalty and collaboration under Articles 6, 7, and 1375 of the Civil Code of Quebec. It does not depend on the presumed intention of the parties. Rather, it is premised on the law's concern for fairness in contracts. See Lule and Moore and Duncan Brands. While Article 1434 of the Civil Code of Quebec does not allow courts to modify or revise contracts, it gives courts the power to enforce what appears to be equitable in a particular set of circumstances. See Pinot, Berman, and Godet. 179. Equity is a means to remedy the imperfections of a contract, so as to balance the interests of the parties. See Lewell and more. It can be used to re-establish an equilibrium where the division of burdens and benefits issuing from the execution of the contract do not align with its intended scheme. See Lewell and more. See also Miller contre Syndicat des Coopérateurs de les Résidents Sébastopol Centre, 1996, Quebec Superior Court. It is a malleable concept 
that must be employed judiciously and with restraint. That said, equity is always relevant when considering contracts that involve a relationship of trust, such as the relational contract at issue. See Lul and more. Subsection 3. Application. Paragraph 180. Based on the relational nature of the agreement and how it informs the requirements of good faith and equity, I conclude that the parties have an implied obligation to cooperate in establishing a mechanism for the allocation of extraordinary profits under the power contract. This obligation flows not from the fact that any profit imbalance between the parties was unforeseen. Rather, it is premised on the fact that an imbalance of this nature and magnitude is beyond what the parties intended when they concluded their agreement. On this point, I agree with the appellant. Energy was a public good with no real market value in 1969. It is for this reason that the pricing formula in the power contract was designed to reflect the declining costs of financing and operating the Churchill Falls project, and not to reflect the possibility of never-before-seen profits derived from the sale of surplus energy. 181. Given the fundamental transformation of hydroelectric power from public good to private commodity, I cannot conclude that the parties intended the pricing formula of the power contract to operate under any and all circumstances, come hell or high water. Such a reading belies the relational nature of the power contract and indeed the relationship of trust and cooperation upon which it was founded. 182. The parties chose not to include a price adjustment mechanism in the power contract. This choice was premised on shared assumptions about the nature and value of hydroelectric power that prevailed in 1969. Given the relational nature of their contract, however, this choice cannot be seen as excluding an obligation to cooperate should these shared assumptions no longer reflect reality. In other words, the silence of the power contract regarding the allocation of extraordinary profits cannot be viewed as excluding the party's intention to define the parameters of their allocation at a later date. The parties cannot be expected to have included all possible scenarios in the power contract. The contractual framework established by the parties depends largely on their ongoing cooperation over a long period of time and gives rise to their obligations to agree on how to allocate the extraordinary profits under the power contract. 183. The binding force of contracts and the considerations of good faith and equity that inform the application of the power contract by virtue of its relational nature confirm that the respondent must be held to this obligation. Good faith and equity in these circumstances require that the parties cooperate in reaffirming the intended balance of their relationship. The recognition of this obligation does not amount to a revision, a modification, the imposition of unintended equilibrium on the parties, or a forced renegotiation of the power contract. It simply recognizes the existence of an implied obligation to cooperate that arises from the relational nature of the power contract itself. Subpart D. Prescription. Paragraph 184. My colleague concludes that the claim brought by the applicant is prescribed by the operation of Article 2925 of the Civil Code of Quebec, which limits the time within which parties may bring in action for the enforcement of personal rights to three years after the right of action arises. Justice Gascon reaches this conclusion on the basis that the appellants raise the duty to cooperate in relation to changing circumstances. As the last major change in circumstances, namely the United States opening its energy markets to foreign producers, occurred in 1997, any claim against the respondent for its failure to cooperate would be prescribed as of 2000 at the latest. 185. I reach a different conclusion, 
based on the fact that the parties were bound by an ongoing duty to cooperate. By persistently refusing to enter into negotiations with the appellant to establish a mechanism for allocating the unforeseen profits, the respondent has been in continuous breach of its obligations to cooperate with the appellant. Where such fault continues in time and causes continuing damages, prescription, translation, quote, starts running each day, end quote, from St. Lawrence Cement Inc. and Barrett, 2008, SCC 64, quoting J.L. Boudouin and P. Delaurier, La Responsabilité Civile, 7th edition, 2007, volume 1. See also Duncan Brands. See also Gordeau contre l'Atelier de Saint-Just, 2002, Quebec Court of Appeal. See also Rabin contre Syndicat des Co. Propriétaire, Somerset, 2060, 2012, QCCS 4431. As the appellant's right of action is grounded in this continuous breach, its claim is not barred by prescription. Subpart E, the appropriate remedy, paragraph 186. In light of my conclusion that the respondent breached its obligation to cooperate with the appellant in establishing a mechanism to allocate the unforeseen profits generated by the power contract, I turn to the question of remedy. 187. Specific performance is an available remedy for the breach of contractual obligations per Article 1590 of the Civil Code of Quebec. Given the nature of the parties in this appeal, the principle that no person may be forced to perform a specific act Nemo pote precis cogi ad factum does not apply. While judges should refrain from ordering specific performance of obligations that require the personal participation of the parties, the object of the obligation at issue and the nature and size of the parties that would be required to perform it may justify an order for specific performance. See Lul and Moore. Such is the case here. As both parties are legal persons of considerable size and resources, there is no reason to conclude that the imposition of such an order would amount to an improper constraint on their capacity to act. 188. I would consequently order Hydro-Quebec to cooperate with CFL Co. in establishing a price adjustment formula for the extraordinary profits that the power contract fails to meaningfully allocate. A court order for the parties to resolve an issue is uncommon, but not unknown. See White Birch Paper Holding Company, Arrangement Relativa, 2015, QCCS 701, Leave to Appeal Refused, and 2015, QCCA 752. See also La Berge contre Villeneuve, 2003, Quebec Superior Court. See also Picard and Picard, 2015, QCCS 5096. In the absence of mutual agreement in the six months following this order, I would order that a price adjustment formula be established by a justice of the Superior Court of Quebec upon submissions by the parties. Part 3. Conclusion. Paragraph 189. The relationship of trust and cooperation created by the power contract has been disavowed by Hydro-Quebec. To justify this disavowal, Hydro-Quebec denies the nature of the contract. In doing so, it has transformed its relational contract with CFL Co. into one of unilateral exploitation. This is unwarranted under the civil law of Quebec. 190. I would allow the appeal with costs throughout. Appeal dismissed with costs. Justice Rowe descending.